So today we have another member of Leap on the podcast. You've seen what we've done with Neil Woods. He got a phenomenal response. And as part of our mission on this channel, which is the statement is end the war on drugs, take all that money and go after the predators with it. There's been a, a total misappropriation and misallocation of resources. Suzanne Sharkey is an ex-cop and she is a Leap um, kind of, what's what's your position in Leap then? Oh, my, my official uh, is co-executive director. Co-executive <laughs> director like, of woo. Leap UK. <laughs> These are the people changing the hearts and minds where it matters in politics, with the legislators, because we've got to get the laws changed to end this madness. And we're going to get into that. But first, I want to go through what led Suzanne to becoming a cop and her experience in the police force and how she came to this conclusion about the war on drugs. <laughs> so th thank you very much for coming on. Pleasure. So what part of the country were you raised in to start with? I was raised in um, Northumberland, actually. Um, I went to school in a place called Hexham, very countrified town, um, but sort of based around Newcastle. I'm based in Newcastle now. So you don't speak like a Geordie? No, I haven't got a strong Geordie accent. <laughs> and when did you first hear rave music? Um, for me, it was the early 90s. Early 90s. Early 90s. Fellow raver in the house. Yeah. <laughs> and what were you like at school then? Oh, God. I wasn't expecting that question. Um, at school, you know what? In my head, I was a rebel and I wanted to stand up and defy teachers and all that. But actually, I, was, I, was, I didn't get into trouble. I didn't put my head out there and you know, I had a couple of detentions. I didn't even skive off school. I just, I, and you know what, for me, they might come out like, you know, I, I've, I didn't enjoy school. And I always had this feeling of not fitting in. Were you bullied or anything? I was bullied in middle school. And, um, but this is, see, this is the really funny thing is because I always had friends and I always had groups of friends. I was very sporty, did all the team sports, but like inside I felt like, I, the word say is I just didn't feel I fitted in anywhere and I felt a bit of a fake. I felt I was always a fraud trying to fit in and be liked. And I was, but I still didn't sort of feel comfortable in my own skin really i was exactly the same at that age because i was one of the littlest in my year group so i was getting so beat up by the rugby players during the breaks i'd be hiding out in the technical drawing room scared <laughs> to go out in case you know i was going to get picked on and it's hard to adapt isn't it when you're in that you know um when you're at that age and you don't have the skill set to socialise properly and, and, mm -hmm. and mix with people. And kids are so cruel out there as oh, well. Oh, kids are just, yeah, kids are cruel. And yeah, it's just, I, don't, I didn't get the point of anything. Yeah. Like, what's the, I just felt, what's the point? I mean, I know you're supposed mm. to get exams and do this, and this is the way it goes, but I still was like, to what end? Were there any subjects that pleased you? <sighs> art, creatively, art, um, Anything and sport. You like to do the sport yeah, yeah, then? Yeah. yeah. 
So what kind of friends did you make at, at that age? Were they like other people who weren't in with the... No, I was never really in with the in crowd. Yeah. More so when I got into sixth form because there was a lot less of you mm. and sort of everyone else had gone on to do, whether they'd left to do apprenticeships and yop schemes as they were at the time. Yeah. Um, so I was sort of, but was I, I, don't, I wasn't even really in an in crowd in sixth form. Then I got into sort of, <laughs> God, this is going to put a load of lists up, young farmers. Uh, young farmers? It's, a, it's a massive big thing in, in Northumberland <laughs> and in the countryside. Um, yeah. And that was like um, basically going out a lot and getting drunk a lot. Scrumpy parties. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did a lot of that. And, and, and also with, with sport and the sports teams I was in. Mm. Um I like saying, you know, I had friends and went out and did stuff, but, you know, inside, I just felt they're only, they're only doing it to be nice, like, because yeah. I'm, I've been dragged along by such and such, not that actually they like me for, for me, although I didn't know who the hell I was. Did you ever anal try and analyse what the root cause of that insecurity was? Oh... Well, I, I, I do now. Well, I, I have understanding of that now, but like for the majority of my life, I didn't know what was wrong. Say what was wrong with me. Gosh, it, it's hard because it's like it basically it comes down to self worth. You know, it was that sense of I had no self worth, no self esteem, no um, no confidence. And and I like saying where that come came from, and obviously, like my story unfolds, is that I ended up um, problematic substance user, alcohol and other drugs. And I always say alcohol and other drugs because alcohol is a drug, which is important in the scheme of things. And um, and it wasn't until I got into recovery that I started to unpick. You know, there's always that massive question when you um, that. I'll say realisation that I have an issue. Issue's a bit of a, a light word to use for it. Um, I think every, every, everybody's <laughs> got issues or has had issues. Well, yeah and, yeah, and and obviously the thing with, you know, alcohol and drugs were my medicine, they were the answer. Self-medication, same here. They, yeah. they same were yeah. the answer to that yeah. confidence, to go out there, mm -hmm. be the life and soul of the party, um, you know, let's do this, I'll do it, you know... Um, Here's one, I'll have two. Um, you know, all of that. And, you know, that lasted for a while and then got older, life. You know, and there's always this big sort of people want to know, you know, is it is it nature, is it nurture when it's to do with problematic substance use? Again, I use problematic substance use because language is really important. Um, you know, alky, junky, all those words, just, they're really ugly words and... Um, I like to say people with addiction issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that's that's great, you know. But then to sort of realise that it's an issue, and then get into recovery—that's a huge flipping gap. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was yeah. But so back to sort of nature nurture because you know is is it genetical? And you can look at my family, and there is alcoholism in the family. There's mm. depression in the family. Mm. Um, there's childhood trauma for me. Mm. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm one of four girls and uh, we're all different and we'll probably see my 
life experiences growing up from a different way. Was the sibling rivalry? And not me and my sister, there was a period of that. No, I, I was the odd one out. Well, I, this, this is my perception. I was the odd one out. Um, I was the one that got into trouble. I was the one that caused the trouble. I was the arsey one. I was the one that would sort of like, you know, sit there like that. <laughs> you know. Um, Where were you in the pecking order of age? I was, I was third. Third, third. okay. So, uh, and, and my younger sister, bless her, she was such a goody two-shoes. She, <laughs> and, she still is. <laughs> she still is. Um, so... Um, Did you think you had to have something to prove then, act a bit wild to impress the older sisters? I just, I, just, I wanted to be... It's that bit of, I wanted to be different as well. Do you know what? It's that crazy thing of wanting to fit in, but then be different. Yeah. And, and stand out and, and be noticed, I suppose. I think... Um, Maybe that was part of it, you know, one of four girls. My mum was looking after us all. My dad was out. He was a farmer working all the time. Um, you know, whether, whether it was a, an attention thing. And again, it's really important, you know, I don't blame my parents. They did the best they could. And this is the thing, they did the best they could. Mm. Um, you know, and as uh, with, with my dad, he wasn't a great dad. But... I understand how he was and how he behaved now. Um, and what that means for me is that I can recognise that behaviour in me and I don't replicate it with my kids. So sort of changing that cycle, it's just because there's addiction in my family and it could be genetical doesn't mean that I have to pass that on. So you're saying your dad was like a workaholic who hit the bottle? Yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in my view, because like I said, I, I, I've never really asked my sisters what they think, but but my dad was a functioning alcoholic. And he was absent a lot. In the, yeah, I mean, he, the, he was really hardworking farmer, you know, out early morning to late at night. He was a perfectionist. You know, nobody could do the job as good as him. Um, and had no, he, he couldn't show emotion. You know, he didn't say he loved me. I can't remember him ever hugging me as a child or, you know, those things that, you know, help me with homework or anything. I mean, he did once with my maths and then he lost his temper with me because I couldn't understand it and he was very intelligent and couldn't understand why I couldn't understand it. Mm. You know, it's, you know, it, you know, this isn't, it's not uncommon, mm -hmm. you know, but I thought I was the only one. You know, everyone else's parents seemed perfect and they were there and making cupcakes and turning up to the sports events and all that stuff. And that's actually not true. Good job there wasn't an Instagram back then. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> did you grow up with animals then? Yes, I did, yeah. Was that fun? It, you know what, I should, I should say it was. It, you know, like in the country, in the Northumberland countryside, with horses and <laughs> cattle and sheep and lambs, and, and I hated it. You hated it? I hated Were you it. pining for the opposite then, the city? Yeah, that's why I live in... Um, Newcastle upon Tyne in a city now. It's, right. it's, it's a sort of a standing joke when I sort of go back out there. I'm like, oh, <laughs> like you know, there's, there's no weight rose or the stores like that that I can go and get my milk. It's yeah. a lifestyle choice, it, you know. It is. It's beautiful, mm -hmm. and I like going there. But oh, when I get back into the city, I'm sort of like, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So all right, we left off then where you were at sixth form college, and just to explain to the Americans, perhaps in the UK. If you finish high school and you want to go to university, you go for two years at a thing called a sixth form college where you have to choose what back then was called A-levels. <laughs> and um, you like 
at university you specialize in the subject but at sixth form college you can have like three or four a level selections of subjects you're interested mm-hmm. in what a levels did you choose oh god this is embarrassing <laughs> this is like right so mm-hmm. yeah so so it was Queen Elizabeth High School, so they actually had a sixth form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got the grades to get into that sixth form. And I did environmental studies, which is a combination of geography and biology. Wow. Um, I don't think they even do it now. Mm. Um, God, what else did I do? Oh, I did English and I did food and nutrition. Good grief. That's a collection, isn't it? It was, well, like I say, <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do, yeah. who, who I wanted to be, so it was sort of... That's and that and that's what I could do. You know, at yeah. the time though, you know, I didn't get good enough O levels, GCSEs to do like mm-hmm. straight. So there were sort of like ones for those not massively academically minded. If you were unhappy then in the high school environment, did you start to find some happiness in sixth form? No, really. Um, I mean. I mean, I didn't go around with the face on all the time because yeah. that was part of it. I was acting, mm. which came come, came into use later on. But um, I was acting the part of trying to fit in and um, maybe, I don't know what's wrong, but so sort of my first addictions of choice, if you like, mm. I had an eating disorder, so I had bulimia and mm. exercise and I could hide those, both those really well mm. to change the way I feel. And then at the time in sixth form, it was it was... Alcohol. So it, it, did the eating disorder start around that time then in sixth yeah, form? Yeah, it started around when I was 16. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. And then you set your sights on uni? Um, I set my sights on, I'll say I set my sights on, I sort of, I'm sort of like a jack of all trades master. And I sort of fell into a friend of mine who was, who was like my best friend at the time we were both really into sport and she decided she was going to do PE college. So I thought, oh, well, I might as well try that because I like sport. Yeah. Um, so I ended up getting into what was Brighton Poly, which is Brighton University now. And I was da- and I went to... The South Coast. The South Coast, as far away from home as possible. <laughs> um, and did a B.Ed. in PE. Good grief. It's got quite an atmosphere, Brighton, doesn't it? Brighton. However, I have to add that, so the... The sports side of it was all based in Eastbourne. Ah. So, like, so the sport, the, the B.Ed. to be a PE teacher and yeah. sports science. And, and the hotel catering, bizarrely, mm. was all in, in Eastbourne. Um, but we did have a few good trips out to the Zap Club in Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> what year was that? Just so I can get an idea of the kind of music. Oh, that would have been um, 19... 87 to 1990. Oh, that was Summer of Love around then, wasn't it? Yeah. The rave scene. Mm. That was when people were just like knocking warehouses in and her playing mm. hangers in and just setting up the parties. So were you part of that then? Was it like, was no. it that music? I mean, I was always into that sort of music. Yeah. And I, and I, and I specialised in dance at, in the PE place. Yeah. Um, but at that time, we were sort of quite a really close-knit community. So there wasn't that many other people mm. that were like that yeah um so like anybody remembers the days in eastbourne there was a, a massive nightclub at the end of the pier which changed its name i can't remember what it was first called but it ended up being called the roxy and that is sort of you know we used to come in like down the roxy and ziggy's on a monday night <laughs> and actually tj's on a thursday and then the the student bar on a friday so it sounds like you were starting to fit in more finally yeah 
you'd found your footing. Yeah, you know what? My friends that I lived with, so I ended up living with uh, five other girls in a house. Um, I'm actually going for a, a reunion next next week to meet them. And so over 30 years, they're sort of like my core core friends. Like, you know, you know, like the friends you, you go back to and you yeah. just pick up where you left off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. Although then. I still didn't feel like I fitted in. Really? No, yeah. Still? Still that. Wow. They're only being nice to me. How long did you last in physical education? Then? <laughs> well, so um, when I finished, I had to move back home like you, most students have to do when they've graduated. Um, and um, my husband, who was still my husband, he was in the year above me. And he was actually from Middlesbrough. So um, I moved back home. He was in Middlesbrough. And then I started looking for jobs there. So I got my first teaching job in Newcastle in a West Denton High School. <laughs> it was... Um, it had it its led challenges. me to join the police, shall we say. <laughs> it had its challenges, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the difficult thing... Is was that so? I I just started teaching and I was like twenty two, so like the kids in like six six form they were just a few years younger than me, so when I was out down in Newcastle clubbing, standing on a podium dancing, and then I look down and then I see the six form, it's like shit, you know. I mean, yeah, exactly that. <laughs> and, and then I'm getting dragged down off the podium because you're not allowed to dance on the podium by oh. the bouncers. And then I'm like being arsed with the bouncers. And it's like, I mean, I look back and go, bloody hell, I don't know how I kept that job. Some conflicts of interest there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, they shouldn't have been in the club because they were actually underage, but, you know, yeah. I wasn't going to. So it was, yeah, it was difficult. It was difficult because it was a, it was a difficult school. Yeah. You know, um, I was in a really good PE department, actually. Um, yeah, but it's hard trying to control 30, a class of 30, 16-year-old girls. Yeah. It's What tough. attracted you to the police? How did that come to your attention? <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, my, my brother-in-law joined the police, um, Whilst I was I was teaching, and again, so you, so you'd got married. That's no, 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 I didn't story. get married no? till a lot, oh, okay. lot later. Okay. Um, so again, me, like, oh god, I used to hate Monday mornings going to school, and like, I still had that feeling of, um, I'm going to get found out. I'm a fraud here. Are people going to find out that I can't really teach? Which, again, is ridiculous because I've just done a degree for four years. Mm. But this is my head. This is just the way my head works. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't like it. What else can I do? Almost like changing my environment, changing the people, because I'll do that before they find out mm. or I get into trouble or something. Um, and because I was dealing with very difficult kids um, and speaking to my brother-in-law, um, it was like... I don't have to teach these kids. I could just bloody arrest them all. Mm. So not, not quite as easy as that, but it was like, you know what, I'm going to try. Um, and so I applied to Cleveland Police Force and because my husband was in Middlesbrough and Northumbria Police Force. Um, I failed the Cleveland entrance on the interview, and um, but I got into Northumbria. And it's, I mean, at the time, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time... It, very v- rigorous interviews. You know, it's over a couple of days. 
all these team building exercises and mm. questions and fitness and all of that. So it was, um, and actually the the question that I think got me in was like the the guys that were interviewing me said, well, would you give your you know would you give yourself the job as a police officer? Mm. So I sort of went, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Mm. Although my head was going. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> anyway, I, I got it, whether it was that or not, I don't know. I, but I, I got in and started my career in the police force. So when you got accepted, how did that feel? Scary. Like, it, it was like, wow, I've got in. Or like, wow, I've got in. Fuck, what do I do now? Um, you know, new start, new career. Let's give it a go. And um, And I did. Because you've got to be very brave to join the police because it's a job where, you know, you could go to work and not come home if certain yeah, situations arose. I, the things like that, the risks, the consequences, the, the things like that go through your mind or you were more idealistic? I think I was more idealistic. Mm. I was, I was you, you know, as well, I, th I know it's hard for people to grasp the idea of before social media, internet, mm. instant sort of information that... Um, I had as a bit idealistic that, you know, joining the police, I could do some good as well. You know, I'd be in communities, catching the buddies, the real criminals, um, making the the world a better place, if you like. And, um, and I never really thought of the really risky situations that I would end up in or or face or actually, you know, the near misses which I think you don't, until after the event happens, you don't sort of realise how risky it could be until you look back and go, that was a bit risky. And I think now, um, I would say now it's, it's even more dangerous to be in the police force than it's ever been. So the kind of person who would jump on a speaker then and just dance in front of the whole crowd of people has perhaps a bit of a risk-taking side to them bit of an adrenaline side to them yeah yeah do you think then that the police it, it was like an excite there was an excitement there as well this is yeah oh yeah i'm not sat behind you know i'm not doing the, the nine to five mm -hmm. office job anything could happen yeah yeah that was the idea but then when you're sitting in a patrol car at three o'clock <laughs> in the morning on night shift it's not quite as exciting oh but that's you know that's a small part of it before we get to that then you got your letter, you've been accepted, what happens next? Is there some kind of training you've got to go through? Yeah, I, I mean, again, I don't know what the training process is now. So we, uh, Akeley Heads, which is a place in Durham, um, there's various training places throughout England for police officers. And at the time, um, I where the training was was in Durham, which is literally just down the road from me, so it was great. But you got 15 weeks intensive training so sort of like monday to friday with all the cohort of people that had been accepted at that time um and you're on like a two-year probation at the time so you, you go and do your 10 weeks intensive you know learning about the law role play all that stuff fitness bonding with other police officers um and then and within that you you, you get a break and you get an attachment with the shift that you're going to be working with or where you're based, come back and you finish off. Um, then you have a nice big graduation and then you're sent on your way. So you reeled off a lot of different things you've got to do during the training. Out of all those things, 
Which ones did you enjoy the most and why? Uh, I well, I enjoyed the sort of fitness aspect of it because I was good at it and I was sort of like, well, I, was, I was the fittest there. So what, what, take us through it. What, what, on a fitness day, what would you have to do? Right, so there's a thing called a bleep test, which they still do. So it's basically two marks. People that do sports will know about it. You've got your two markers. I can't remember, I think it's like 30 metres apart. And you have to run between the two. Mm, but like it's, sprinting, is but it? But it's timed. So it starts off really slow. Mm. And then it gets faster and faster and faster. And then depending what level you get up to, ind- indicates sort of your fitness. So like at the time, I'd never get anywhere near it now. Um, I was thir- level 13, which is very sort of quite... Um, oh, what's the word? Elite athlete fitness, sort of. Whip it level. Yeah. <laughs> and what, out of those things that you reeled off, which ones were the ones that you didn't like for any reason? I didn't like, I didn't like the law tests. Law. <laughs> the law tests, <laughs> because um, I'm not very good at remembering stuff. And yeah. it's so complex. Even, even though, you know, we didn't go into... Again, this is the thing you got a general, uh, a general knowledge of the law because when you start looking at stuff, you know that's why when you join the police, say for example you go into traffic, it's a, another whole ball game of what you need to know where afford for traffic law. Um, so, so you know you're going into communities, sort of general, law, law and disorder, general crimes, shoplifting, criminal damage, domestic, those sort of things, but. Like remembering it, it's you know, and like having to. So you had what you do is while well, you'd have scenarios, you know, play role. So you'd get other people coming in doing the play role, and you'd have you know working out, are they breaking the law or not? Um, weighing up the situation, and then how do you respond? So do they teach you a rest protocol. Yeah. What is the rest protocol that you were taught? God. You go in there, <laughs> your rest protocol, I would say um, at the time it is you, you go in, you go in with an open mind because um, obviously you don't know the backgrounds to people. You assess the situation. Now, this is how I felt it was at the time. It may be very different now. Um, you go in and if you can arrest somebody, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Based on what? Um, on uh, so you're going in. That sounds really bad, doesn't it? But sort of at the time when a way to assess a police officer and their um, performance was very much related to your arrest rates, and so um. arrest rates indicated that you were doing a good job. Therein lies a problem we're going to address later on, I imagine. But you know. I would say that's changed. I'm not too sure how much. So, and obviously, it wasn't written down anywhere, but certain arrests would give you more brownie points than other arrests. Drug ones. Drug ones in particular, um, where, there, where there was violence involved, you know, robberies and, and such the like. Twocking was big in the 90s, taking without owner's consent car. Um you know, theft from cars was really cool. You know, the radios used to be able to pull out, ram raids. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's quite embarrassing to say that because, you know, I'm not proud of that. But that was the mentality that I, I 
learnt when I went into the police. And again, you know, people can forget that actually the success of the police in, in your communities is an absence of crime. It's not the detection of it. So there lies the problem that going on arrest rates, detecting all this crime, isn't actually a good thing. So how old were you when you finished your training and what was your confidence in your career like? Oh, so I was 23 when I finished my training. Again, now you have, you have like two years probation. So you finish your training, you get through that, you get the tick and you, and you go on to your shift and so, go forth. So you said you get two years of probation. What does that mean? So, um, so for two years you are assessed and at the end of that two years is sort of like you're officially... You can officially do the job. So what are you doing that they are assessing for that two years? So your performance, so arrests, um, looking at things like, you know, your paperwork, your paperwork's done. What have you created? Um, what difference have you made into the community? How you fit into your, into the shift? Um, teamwork, working with other people. You know, it's just basically like a work review. Are you like partnered up with senior people during your probation period? Yes. Yeah, so what you get is you get a, like um, an officer. I say I actually got an officer that hadn't had the training, but because of staffing, whatever. So a police officer can opt to do probation training. So they'll go and do that, and then on the shift when a newbie like me comes along they'll be partnered up and their job will be to um show you the ropes uh, you know the area and how you how you do other paperwork that you haven't done in, in your basic training and stuff and how to do the job so again you know it, it's it's really important who you get and that can make a difference to how your probation goes as well so maggie oliver we interviewed her here and she was talking about sexism back then. Were you experiencing back in anything? The day. Were you experiencing anything like that? Oh, yeah. again, you know what it is. This is—it's like you know, hashtag fucking hell hindsight. <laughs> um, that you know, I was quite naive. Oh, I was naive in, in lots of ways. So, like one of those, and I, and I never thought about it until I look back on it and go, I put up with that. But, you know, again, remembering sort of at the time there was a big sort of push on um, getting more women into the police force and diversity, you know, ethnic minority groups being represented. There were not a huge, there wasn't a huge amount of females. Um, so when I joined, although they disbanded with it, I think about in the first year I was there, we used to like wear a skirt to court, which I was like... I can't fucking believe this. This is ridiculous. Why do we have to wear a skirt? But we had to. And then they disbanded it. Anyway, so that's one aspect that they did get rid of. So I, I got called in. All the probationers, they get called into the superintendent's office. And um, the superintendent, Arnold, a great guy. Um, but he was like, oh, yeah, so welcome to biker. I was in biker, biker and walker. Welcome to the shift, you know. Uh, are you are you fit? Yeah, yeah, I run. Great, great. Uh, can you do push-ups? Yeah, yeah, give us 10. And I was like, okay. And I was like, that's fine. And I didn't think about it. I was like, fine, I can do that. And then I was just like, afterwards, I'm thinking, would he have asked a bloke to do that? So I did 10 push-ups in his office, got a pat on the back, good lass, and sent on my way. 
and then there's always the, all the, all the um, sexist remarks in in the um, oh god, what's it called? Basically, in the patrol room where, where you'd meet with your shift and other shifts, and other male members would make comments and. And then nights out, you sort of had to be aware, <laughs> shall we say. Did you ever find you had to put someone in the place? I never did because I just didn't have I didn't have that confidence in me. Mm. You know, I look back now and, and like, oh my god, that's I I I just didn't I didn't know I did. You know, so now I'm much more aware and call myself a feminist. Um, and some of the things that happened and went on. I would hope to say that it would never ever happen today, but who knows? Um, yeah, it was it was it was a sex environment, and as a female, you sort of basically have to be one of the lads mm. and man up, um, or you were ostracised. And actually, between I had um, quite a lot of difficulty with some of the female, other female police officers because you're another female. They see in my experience, they see me as a threat um, and would challenge me and um, I'd, I'd have to be really careful around them. During your probationary period, other than what you've just described, what were the biggest challenges for you? <laughs> night shifts. Night shift? <laughs> no, that's actually, that's light. It's not night shift. Early mornings. What's that one? What, what hours? So it was, um, it was 6 a.m., to two o'clock in the afternoon they they changed they changed them but that was just especially if i'd been out the night before <sighs> yeah, on a weekend uh, which yeah. is like i found it really difficult not to go out <laughs> so are you encountering violent corpses horrific scenes during these probationary years or is that later on because most of the cops have interviewed have I think pretty much all of them have encountered those things. Yeah, um, yeah, all of those things. I think you sort of accumulate them, and I know sometimes I think, oh, I'm, I'm, am I really insensitive? Because I mean, as well, this was before I had kids, so I think maybe be very different now. Sort of, I just I desensitize myself to it. Um, you know, numerous sudden deaths that you'd have to go to and there's a dead body and go through the protocol of that. It was it was just a, a body. I think one of the hardest ones was um, a young girl who was playing chicken on a motorway oh. um, and got hit. That was probably the hardest one. Oh, how old was she? She... She was at about 12, 13, what 12. Hell? She got on the motorway. It was like a dual carriageway that goes through the, the centre of Newcastle. Oh. Um, and, and she didn't survive. I ended up, I had to go to the hospital with her and stay in intensive care and um, stay with, with the mother. Um, and they get, you know, and actually thinking back at that age, sort of, um, it, it, it transpired that she had mental health issues, the girl mm. at 12. And, you know, again, in, Many many years ago, it, it's not it wasn't a huge thing talked about, or yeah. you know, sort of a risk taker as well. Mm-hmm. And and she was playing chicken, but it, like she didn't care playing chicken. I mean, it's awful. It's so. What happened? Did like a call come in? There's a girl on the road. Yeah, mm-hmm. traffic attended, and 
basically she was on the road and and actually it was a doc if I believe right remember rightly it was actually a doctor that had hit her mm. um you know and it was it wasn't his fault was at, she gone right away no she got into intensive care mm. in the hospital and died in hospital mm. so have you then got to like um you know stand there with the mom and you know is is there a protocol for dealing with the bereaved yeah well i seen at, at that time i hadn't had like any bereavement training mm. but i was then found that i was i was with this woman who was the the mother um it, it was a bit of a complicated uh, background because she wasn't actually living with the mother and i can't remember who else but sort of a um I think she might have even been foster care, something like that. It, it wasn't as straightforward, so it was quite difficult to find the mum. And then we found the mum and, I mean, I got through it and sat with her and comforted her. I mean, but like, you know, how do you comfort someone that's just found out their kid's been killed? Um, whatever the relationship is, is with them. Um, but I I, I seem, I, I managed sort of in those situations I don't know, I sort of like put on a, a role, I pretend to be somebody and I can do that. I sort of just, uh, what's the word? Disjoint from myself. It's separate. a protection mechanism, isn't yeah. it? You're internalising yeah. it. Mm. Yeah. So some of the other cops have said they had to go like watch autopsies and go to the morgue. Did mm. you have to do all that stuff? Yeah, I, did. I find that really interesting. Do you? I'm a bit gruesome <laughs> as well, actually. Do you watch that show, Autopsy? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm like one of those ones, if I have an operation, I'd much rather see them... Do yeah. it, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I actually, yeah. What? What? Go on, take us through that then. What? Go, so, go and just watch an autopsy. So um, I don't really think do it now. It was like oh, it was part of your probation that you, mm. ha you had to go and see the whole process through of what happened. Yeah. And um, again, a really interesting one. God, I sound really grim, but it was actually a woman that had thrown herself off the Tyne Bridge. Bloody hell! I know. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. There are some happy people in Newcastle, honestly. There are, um, and again, there was this. There, there was sort of a, um, a history of mental mental issues mm. around it. Anyway, so so I go to, the, and I think they wanted me to go to that one as well because I was sort of the female, the new female on the shift, sort of like I don't know, I might faint or something mm. or whatever. But I found it incredibly interesting because actually, what they found was the woman had two wombs. And so she, she didn't know that or at the, before whatever. It was discovered in the autopsy and potentially that was why she had a lot of mental health issues and problems to do with hormones and imbalances in the body. Two wombs. Yeah. Wow. That had been undiagnosed. Yeah. That's a shame, isn't but, it? But I mean, I, you know, so I, and I found that really interesting. I mean, awful. It was, it was a suicide. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, what happens at the autopsy then? Do you have to have like smelling salts, and you have to watch? Certain... No. Well, it depends. Depends what you like. You literally yeah. went in with a gown, your masks on, and the um, the doctor who was doing the autopsy basically talked you through it. And there's mm. you know the cutting open tooth. In sudden deaths, it's um, unless there's a history of. Uh, illness so for example somebody that's maybe in, in palliative care at home that is dying from cancer dies the, the generally doesn't necessarily have to be in autopsy because it was a predicted death if you know what i mean yeah whereas sudden deaths they 
find the cause so they can record it. So it's sort of, you know, they cut them open, pull out the lungs, look at the lungs, the heart, um, the other organs, weigh them, seeing if they're... And did that make you queasy at all? No, I no, I like that sort of stuff. But I am a farmer's daughter as well, so, you know, <laughs> I'm used to... Farmyard accidents yeah, and animal farm accidents, stuff. Yeah, animals giving Cows, birth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> did watching a body get sawed open make you question your mortality? No. No. That makes me sound really hard, no. <laughs> I question my mortality more now yeah. than I did then. Yeah. You know, I think, I don't know, it's, it's that youth that yeah you're invincible I don't think you're I like, don't, yeah not that invincible yeah, spirit but sort of like, yeah, it won't well that classic line what happened to me yeah yeah wow okay then you come out of your probationary period and then do you get assigned to a certain task or role or yeah so um I mean you find out um after the 10 weeks because you have a break and you and you go to the shift that you're assigned so I got assigned um, the Newcastle East area, which is Biker and Walker, um, and the police station there, which it's not there anymore. Um, in Biker, I was on A Relief, which was the shift. So there's like A Relief, B Relief, C Relief, D Relief. And that's sort of what was rotated that covered 24-7 policing in the Newcastle East area. Um, and I was assigned A Relief. So I then was assigned to my probation trainer and you just go around with him for I think it was about five weeks then you went back finished off five weeks and then you were basically let out into the in, into the world with your probation to be a police officer so how much of it was office work and how much was it out in the field uh, I'd well to start with it was more well, it varied. I mean, God, paperwork was always a pain in the arse. I don't know whether it's any easier now being on, again, on computers and all, all the stuff that you have now. Because at the time, it was literally, you had like a drawer, really thin drawers, which were all the the correct sheets and stuff. And you'd have to pull them all out, write them all out, go on the computer, do the PNC checks, criminal records, all the rest of it, when you were creating a file. So this was a file you'd create that was going to go to court when you've arrested somebody and they've been charged and they're going to go to court. So um, obviously that depends when you're out, how many people you arrest, how often you arrest and and the, the paperwork accordingly. Um, so most most of the shifts you were out and about, um, unless you got an arrest, then depending on what that arrest was, you brought them back to the, the uh, police station, processed them with the custody sergeant, where that meant you had to go out and get more information, do some more investigative work, or they needed to be kept in the cell overnight, or, um, again, depending on what you'd arrested for. So, so for example, shoplifting is quite straightforward. You arrest them, you take them to the custody, you do a quick interview, they admit to shoplifting. Now, you, you, you know, depending on the record, their previous... They'd either sort of get a fine and told off or they'd be bailed to come to court when they go to magistrate's court. So when you say you're out and about then, did you like have to like just walk, you know, like the old beat cart walking through the neighbourhood? Are you in a patrol car? Are you just getting call-outs to certain uh, people, the public, you know, responding to what the public are calling in? Or is it a combination of so all of them? It, it was a combination of both that we had. Um, oh, God, foot patrol. 
Foot Patrol. <laughs> can be a lonely place. Um, Is Foot Patrol solo or are you with someone always? Well, again, um, I remember I, I got into trouble. I can't remember what I got into trouble for now. I'm trying to think if I remember. Um, and my punishment was to do Foot Patrol on my own. <laughs> So I don't quite work out. Again, I don't think it would happen now. So, yeah, so like on a late shift, um, which is two till ten, out in Bike and Walker on, on foot. Is that a dodgy neighbourhood? It's really mixed. Um, there's some very... Um, between the east and west of Newcastle, west is probably has a larger area of more socially deprived I'll say estates um, and Walker is slightly worse than Biker um, and it, but it also covered Heaton which is sort of now becoming quite a middle class area to live but it, 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 it has its very rough patches yeah so you're out on this punishment walk yeah it's like what, a walk of shame <laughs> what, what, what challenges arose on that day um do you know what what to do? What I mean, to do? like, right, I've got to like and hope that you might find somebody to arrest because <laughs> at least you can go back to the, the police station and get warm and <laughs> and uh, like I said, I, I don't know, I don't know whether they, I don't think they would let you patrol on their own, your own now. I would like to say they wouldn't, but I don't know. Um, yes, yeah, so that would be sort of walking around the area, basically doing. Um, checks on car registrations, anything. Don't, you, you know, you got to know where certain people lived, what activities were going on, so you could go around, check vehicles, um, speak to drivers if they're parked or, you know, you know, and, and there were shops around, so you'd just get called in for shoplifters and stuff um, and take information down off people. Chat, to, you know, I suppose really what it should have been doing is chatting to the community and getting to know the public that I serve, which I did actually do. I did do that as well. Um, but that's sort of the... I did do that. <laughs> I did do that because I was looking for people to arrest, but I sort of was. Um, but, you know, speaking to the public, because, again, it's that thing people felt more comfortable seeing police officers walking around. What equipment did you have on your weapons? Oh, so at the time... I had uh, so I had my stab proof vest on, um, my like my utility belt with my quick cuffs, pepper spray, and retractable truncheon. Did you have to use the, radios? Did you have to use the spray in the early years? Yeah, I've used it a couple of times. What was the circumstances you had to use it the first time? Uh, the one that comes to mind is down uh, in Walker. Um, there was this pub called The Scrog, which was the quite, Scrog. I know, yeah, quite well-renowned. And it was actually a guy basically drunk in disorder, but he was he was off his head. Um, and I got into a wrestling match with him. And Were you on your own? No, I was actually with another guy, which was actually really quite lucky because the guy that I was with was quite a big guy. Mm. Um, so I sort of got into a struggle with him and... I got flung somewhere, so I got my pepper spray out. My person that I was with, he managed to pin him down and I, I could spray him. Did that um, disable the person? 
Not that much, actually. Not, that Not much. as much as I thought it was going to. Yeah, he was still resistant. Yeah. Because is pep like if you're a civilian in this country, are you allowed to have like a pepper spray key ring or anything like that? I know you can in America. I don't know whether you are. I I don't think you are. You're not. I don't think so. Um, or I'm I'm not too sure because, like, saying obviously, I know the big thing isn't it about you know women walking on their own and what they can have to sort of protect themselves. I'm not sure whether I know you can buy it because you've got the alarm ones. You've got the you? alarm ones, but the actual pe- yeah. I, I don't actually think it is legal for Do you, you think to. Think the, the pepper spray key rings are possibly illegal. Yeah. So. Um, the second time you had to use pepper spray, what was that? I'm trying to think where that... Again, that was... It was another disorder. Um, and I'm trying to think what the situation was. It was a Saturday night. And again, it was a group of males and a fight had kicked, out, kicked off outside a pub. Drunks again. And sort of... Alcohol. Yeah, and, and, other, and other substances and... Um, but but it was it was like saying I'd say all all the ones where there was a massive kicking off, and like saying that again, you just used the pepper spray. It was a big fight, and quite a few of the patrol cars turned up. Um, it was always alcohol. What was the biggest melee you attended? Sort of like the biggest sort of fight. Yeah, fight. Um, it was probably the. It was a wedding. A wedding. <laughs> <laughs> a wedding. At, um, it's not there now. It's a social club that was at, like at the top of uh, of the. Um, oh God, I can't remember the name. Like Shields Road, and there's a social club, and basically it was a wedding that kicked off big style, and our police cells ended up being full of all the wedding guests and then some taken to the city centre. Do you know what started that? I can't remember what what started. Again, alcohol, a load of um, families not getting on and it just went mental. Wow. The bride and groom didn't end up in the cells, did they? No, no, the bride didn't. (laughs) The bride? I I don't know. (laughs) But I think everybody else did. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Wow. Did you ever feel like this situation is particularly dangerous in those early years? You felt at risk, where's my backup, that kind of thing? Um, I mean, there was a few times, and again, because sometimes just because of staffing, um, like on night shift, um, in a patrol car on your own, and, you know, so a few uh, disturbances as in, potential burglaries or a person's been seen acting suspiciously in the area. So um, those, yeah, I, I, I don't like the dark. So, um, you know, when you're going into a house, again, I, I just did it. Um, trying to see if there's an intruder, knowing but knowing that there's actually only potentially four other people on somewhere else in the area that might be be on a job as well. So if it does something does happen, I'm not sure when a response will get. Is there so, a button you have or do you have to do a radio call? If there's a radio. A radio call. Gotcha. So 
there's um, somebody in the area, a strange individual in an area. Like, what do you do? Just go knocking door to door. Have you seen this person? Or how, how, how do you try and track that person? Well, it depends how the call comes in. So, so you know, um, burglaries were, were were pretty common. Um, you know, when you got intelligence round of, you know, like on like, like sheds, particularly broken into to get gardening equipment and stuff like that. I don't think that's particularly uncommon. Um, when there's sort of a spate of that going on, you get a call saying, "I think somebody's. I've got an intruder in my garden." Um, so you, so you. Get a, if they had a description, you could look out for that. But then it would you, you basically go in and in potentially blind into that situation to see is the intruder still there? Have they committed a crime? And then speak to the person that's rang that call in. Did anyone pull weapons on you? No, I didn't actually. That's lucky, isn't it? That's really lucky. Yeah. And I think, but I think that is. Um, yeah, more luck than anything else. And it, it wasn't that there wasn't weapons there. It's just that they didn't get that opportunity to use them. Were you involved in any high-profile cases? No, not really. Um, no, it's, it's quite quite boring, really. I, I, I did more... At the time, they were... When I went into... Um, uh, like the CID and operations and then doing um, undercover work because they were sort of of, of a bigger picture. But um, no, I, I think the... Well, I, you know, I I managed to... I, I, like I said, I got an award because I got, I, I got a guy who had committed robberies in the area um, and I, I managed to run after him drag him down and arrest him uh, yeah he had a knife on him but again like saying he d didn't get an opportunity to use it but he did have a knife on him but that was kind of quite no you know it was i got a pat on the back for it yeah so you've, you've um really enabled people to understand you and what led to join the police and your first years in the police now so we're going to move over then to the drug stuff and does that start with you joining the crime team and which is attached to the CID do you want to explain what the CID is as well uh, crime investigation department so um, they were seen as the cool guys would that be like the equivalent <laughs> to the FBI would it, in, the, in America or uh, no because it, 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 it's not that they have any more powers mm. than um, a uniformed police officer it's just that they were their their time and investigation was sort of I say you know, like what what the public would perceive as real crimes, mm. you know. So you 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 know, so you're talking about you know, um, burglaries by a one or two people that do a load of them, robberies, you know, um, drugs, uh, rapes, um, violent crimes. So and and they were in they weren't in uniform. It's a bit like Stosky and Hutch sort of thing, um, you know. And it was sort of like, again, like you're saying, they were exactly the same as police officers. It's just they were in the CID. They didn't have to wear a uniform, and they did like the really interesting stuff. So if if um, sexual assaults were part of that, then did you have to have special training to um, 
deal with and, and, and help victims of sexual assault? Yeah, I did um, uh, rape training. Rape training, it's yeah. called, okay. Um, so basically on how to um, collate all the evidence from when you've taken a, um, a victim to the hospital with the doctor and then also how to um, get a, a, as much information statement from them after the event as well and sort of take them through that process. Because you hear survivors of abuse sometimes complaining that it, it, it's so intrusive what they have to go through. Oh, yeah, it's... They don't, it's, you know, it's it's like compounding the suffering that they've just gone through in the first place. It, it's... It is. Um, it is very intrusive and unpleasant and undignified. Well, you know, one, one of the worst crimes has been committed against... It, it, in what I dealt with, with, with females. Um, it's a horrific process to go through, to take them through the statement as well. And the, and the thing that I found really frustrating was that, um, you know, because obviously we want people to come forward when this has happened to them and get the perpetrators. But because of the way just the law and the criminal justice system is set up, that you, I could have that, I could deal with that um, with the victim, take them through that process, get all the information, and, and we have a, a person arrested for that. They might not get, that might not go to Crown Court for like maybe 18 months, two years. And so when we know, when people say, come forward, yeah, you should always report it. Uh, you know, but if, if that person wants to move on with their life, or try and move on, you know, that is... Com How can you do that? Well, you, you can, but you have to be a really resilient... Um, what's the word? I don't know, just a resilient person to be able to do that. Because otherwise, it's hanging over your head until you get to court. And unfortunately, the detection rates um, and getting um, a sentence are really, really poor. You know, they're, they're appalling. So you think because women know that they're going to have to go through this intrusive process and then the conviction rates are so low, perhaps many of them don't even get that file or they're just, it's a deterrent Yeah. to report it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think and the things, well, I, um, you know, the ones that I dealt with, I had a couple that withdrew because of the long drawn out process that they withdrew yeah wow um and i, and I you know what to be honest i don't blame them mm. because also i've sat through the whole procedure gone to court where i believe the guy did it and you know i believe the woman and you go to court and he gets off of that yeah uh, i'm sure attitudes are changing now but you hear cases of judges you know Oh, you were wearing a miniskirt and all that kind of attitude. Yeah, and that was, was that was that quite common back then? That that that, that happened yeah. very much. Yeah. And how how do you feel about that then? And arms. Oh, I, I wish I knew what I know now. Then, um, 
because I'm not saying that I'd be able to change that, but just to stand up more for them. Yeah. You know, when you have people saying that, you know, and you know, and and you were drunk, you know, you were drunk, you were wearing a miniskirt. You know, if anyone goes to Newcastle on a night out, we're renowned for skinny tops and miniskirts, and we love to go out and we love to party. That doesn't give you the right to. Oh, so they're asking for it. Yeah, it's quite sickening, isn't it? Did you have to deal with um, sexual crimes against kids? I I did a an attachment with the um, child protection unit, which was based in in Biker as well. Um, so I did. I, th- I can't remember how long the attachment was. It, it's not particularly long, like a month. Um, so in that time, I went because because you know one of the things you, you got the opportunity to sort of apply for attachments with places in case that was where you decided you want to specialise or be in you know an interest in and whatever. Um, and also as a female, you know, of, for obvious reasons, not necessarily you know they needed us to be trained in, in like you're saying, sexual assaults and also interviewing children. Um, and so I did an attachment with the Child Protection Unit. Uh, and, I, and again, um, that was one of the reasons I actually didn't go back into um, the police force because like I said I took a career break because I, I'd had my first child and knowing what I knew, I I just thought I... I I wouldn't be able to to do it. I couldn't do with the job anymore. And what did you learn? So, oh, how many paedophiles are out living in areas that they shouldn't be living in, undetected or known about, that um, child abuse, sexual or through violence whilst it happens in all levels of society, you know, so we, I, you know, I talk about the, the British that, you know, you've got your, your middle, your upper class and your working class. You know, we're, we're a society of classes. Um, it happens in all classes, but the people with money generally don't get to court and don't get convicted. Look at Epstein's first sweetheart deal. That reflects that, doesn't it? Yeah. And all the people in high society who continued to associate with him after that as well. Like, it, it didn't even matter. Mm-hmm. That's outrageous. Um, so you said you were with the CPU then. CID. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Child Protection Unit, Oh, sorry, Child it? Protection Unit, yeah. I'm yeah, sorry, you're using yeah. all the acronyms. <laughs> Get you. Um, what cases did you investigate or were involved in with, with, those, with that unit? So... I, I because I was just there for an attachment, mm-hmm. I didn't sort of like get into the into the details and um involved because obviously they're highly sensitive. Um and also it is I hadn't done my like um interview training for children. So I you know, you could sit in on the interviews if if that was allowed. Um so it was very sensitive and obviously the nature of it with children, um you had to be really careful. But, you know, it, 
I mean, I think that you know that is one thing that's just so depressing of the the amount that goes on within society that we don't know about and. So it seems like much. you've took everything in your stride up until now. We've got you rolling around wrestling um, drunks in bars. <laughs> We've got you unfazed by post-mortems. But this, going out with this, you know, whatever you did with this unit's really affected you? Uh, yeah. Did, did, did they like, are they like showing you things or training you to do things? Or, what, what's no, the information uh, it, absorbing? It, it's, to? it's just, you know, so, of, you know, with files and stuff that, that, that you're allowed access to when you're seeing pictures of, you know, really young kids with bruises, marks, cigarette burns, um, and then descriptions of what an adult, a person that was supposed to be looking after them or in their care, what they did to them and in sexual nature. It's just, it's, it's a... It's just another level of, I don't know, depravity. Is that really too strong a word? It's no, just, you know, you know, as adults, we do stuff to each other mm. and not saying it's right or wrong, but, you know, it's sort of like you're old enough to make your own mind up. You know, choices I've made. I was an adult. I take responsibility for those. Yeah. But when it's um, children... It just, I don't know, it's just one of those things that just makes me... Uh, and I think I, th I think that's getting better. You know, it's like a bit off, 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 um, pieced a bit. You know, it's come... I think now what I know now in, in recovery and stuff, to go back to that, of what trauma can do to children and how that impacts them detrimentally for the rest of their life, it's... It just fills me full of, well, sadness because it's sort of like, you know, the people that I'm dealing with, unfortunately, are from very socially deprived areas, high unemployment, areas of no hope, you know, and and then victims of some sort of child abuse, some sort of trauma, you know, these these aren't going to be people that are going to be getting intense therapy, being able to see counsellors, wraparound support to become robust for the future. They're broken and they'll remain broken. And it's drugs to, to yeah. self-medicate and then criminality to finance the drug. Yeah, and, and, and then prison, that. in and out of prison then, yeah. You know, and, 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 and that's another thing that, that became really clear to me of that areas of high, you know, High unemployment, socially deprived, trauma, dysfunction. I'll say dysfunctional families. What is a dysfunctional family? But um, broken families, um, trauma, um, probably expelled from school, get into crime, uh, take illicit drugs, change the way they feel, or they get in into that circle. They then get locked up due to crime to get drugs. And not, and it, it continues. They get then released from prison that's done nothing but either pick up a different habit or continue their habit while they're in there. They get kicked back out into the same environment. What do you think is going to happen? And then there's all the victims of their crimes that society could have been protected from if they'd been given the tools to deal with 
the trauma and occur. And you listed some of those tools, psychotherapy, I think you said, and other mm. things. And that's a, th a common thing on this channel we talk about is these kids aren't given the tools to deal with it. The predators aren't getting removed from them and given long sentences. And they're getting short sentences. And this, you know, the, the kids, even sometimes they get moved from a family into a care home. And in the care homes, we've had guests on who were put in care homes and then they were pimped out by the, the owners of the care homes. Mm -hmm. So, but we'll, all right, we'll get, we'll get to more of the, the, um, the politics. Let's keep going with your personal story. So, targeting drug dealers, when did that begin? So that began in, um, you know, the good old 90s. Mm. You know, the start of the rave scenes. Um, again, it, it was like, it doesn't happen now. Ram raids were, were really big. What's that you mean? When, when um, you get a stolen car and you'd ram it through a window of a shop and then you'd grab everything. Oh, wow. Um, you know, they would be, and like I said, the twocking, the taking without owner's consent. Um, they were sort of the big things. And But then obviously in the 90s, we see it, we see him coming out um, drugs, you know, becoming more and more visible. Like an avalanche of ecstasy, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And obviously the rave scene was like, that's what it was all about. And so what... Um, what developed sort of in, in, in the stages that we're at was so you had the CID and then there was sort of we ran um, basically an operations unit beside that. Now what that meant is we we sort of sat around, got some intelligence in from the area. So from say CID, they'd lock someone up, they'd give them a bit of information. We collate that, collate that and then like, oh right, okay, so this looks like we need to do a raid on this place because we've said from such and such and such, the stolen goods are there or we've we've heard from this person, he's bought some drugs from this place. This guy's bought some drugs from this place. That looks like that's going to be the dealer's place. And so then we'd collate it, put operations together, like the who, what, where, go to the magistrates, get a, a warrant so we can kick the door in. Always go really early in the morning. Um kick the door in, get the stolen goods or get the drugs. And, it, you know, it's all seen as a big success when, when, that, when it all went well. But it, but it was that build-up of, at that time as well, anything to do with drugs was a, was a big star. It was a big bonus, big kudos, big pats on the back. The system incentivising yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Take us through the first time you were on a team that kicked the door in. What was the preparation like? What was the intel? Uh, so, oh God, the intel, trying to remember. I mean, it was, it, the intel was, 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 was quite sim similar, really. So what you'd get is, um, to, to get intel, so you, to get informants, you, you could do that various ways. So um, either in uniform, you got you arrested someone, you could sort of befriend them, chat to them. And at the time, there's this big thing called TICs, which is called taken into consideration. So basically, somebody that you'd arrested that you knew was going to go straight to court, so he had, because of his record, um, kept in overnight. Um, you'd have all these crimes that had happened in the area and... If that person said, "Yeah, that was me," so we so we could tick the crimes as detected, 
um, it would be taken into consideration, which meant at court the judge would be more lenient on them. But then also what we could do is um, if they gave us some information that led to an arrest or to finding X, Y or Z, that again would be taken into consideration or you could take them on as an informant, which at the time meant that they could get money from the police service for various levels of, of information. Um, so you get that by, you go out into the area, which again, actually, that's another thing on foot you can do is you, you're talking to people and you can... It's not very nice, really, because actually what you don't want to be the best mate, but you want information from them. So you're sort of like, you know, I'll help you if you help me. Um, and then quite often in the police cells, um, you'd see certain people in, knew that they're connected with whatever. You could go and talk to them and say, you got, any, got anything for us? Help you out if you want. And then with all that information and then from various other sources, you know, remembering that there's, four other shifts and other people out there and information coming in, um, we'd collate these operations, um, put them together, and again, like you're saying, execute them, hopefully with a result, but it didn't always. So go on, first, your first ever one, the morning of, um, what, to, oh, what, what's it like? Are you like psyching yourselves up, you know, anything, kicking doors in, this, there could be weapons in the, kind of, like, it's an unknown, isn't it, what's beyond that door, really? Mm -hmm. That's got to that's got to take you know yeah. some. You got to be like, <laughs> what's yeah, your adrenaline like going in? Depending on the information, so, so you know the ones where it was stolen goods was sort of like pretty. I mean, obviously the, the people that were there potentially they could have had you know weapons and most likely did, um, but because it was sort of a uh, you know hi fi's and you know, disc players at the time and car radios and stuff like that. Um, it, it was just sort of pretty mundane, sort of like, let's go and kick the door down, seize the goods, and then anybody on the premises that was there would be arrested for handling stolen goods. How do you approach the property? So normally, oh God, I'm trying to remember what we did. So there was about four or five of us on the team, so depending who was on and the size of it, you'd obviously let Uniform know um, that that was going to happen in the morning, so they'd be sort of around the area. And then there'd be sort of two or three of you that would go in. Someone would decide they're going to use the enforcer. So the enforcer is the sort of the big red hammer that you see when you're swinging it at the door. Um, Did you have a go at that? Yeah. What was that like? I was shit because I just knocked in one of those panels. And I, ended up, <laughs> I ended up just... And because obviously you'd done the bang, I ended up just having to climb through. Because I was small, I ended up... Oh, shit. Climbed, climbed through the... Uh, the gap that I'd made and then opened the door from the other side and then went in. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't very good at that. <laughs> what was the hurriest raid? Hairiest? Yeah. Um, I think... I don't know whether it's hairiest. I think the, one of the... Um, ones that I found... Well, yeah, probably the one, there was one that we did and it was to do with drugs and it was to do with this guy who, I can't remember how I got the information. So it was this guy, he lived with a partner and there was two young kids. I mean, it's hideous when I look back. Hideous, um, two kids. He had two dogs because obviously dogs were always a pain in the ass for police officers. Um, uh, and it was good information from a source that he had, I think it was something like half a kilo of coke. 
And so it was quite a big thing in, because he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't a kingpin or anything, but, you know, that was quite a large amount for a person to have. Um, and he sort of came, came around from nowhere. Um, it's like, right, okay. So, but with that, there was um, the known associates, sort of like, you're talking guns, um, weapons, that sort of violent, you know, people that kidnap people and shot the kneecaps sort of thing. So that was probably the one that made me the most nervous um, because you didn't know whether any of them were going to be in the house or whatever. But actually, when we got there, there was only him and his partner and the two young kids, but... No dogs. And there was one dog. There was one dog that I remember, but we then had the police dogs as well. Um, yeah. How I, does that work? You said you have the police dogs. Did the police dogs like intimidate the dog? <laughs> well, it's just, yeah, yeah, like a man up between the dogs. No, the dog was actually all right. Yeah. It wasn't like a big one that came came for your ankle, so that was okay. So we had the uh, the police dogs as the sniffer dogs. Yeah. Um, when you know there's a dog, do you start, the old strategy of taking something to feed it. No. 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 <laughs> Again, I, I, I don't know whether it's like my farmer's background, sort of like I'm okay with animals. Okay. You know, I wasn't scared of dogs or anything. It doesn't mean I'm a flipping dog whisperer or anything like that. <laughs> you, you know, like it could have bit me, whatever, as I yeah. was kicking it. But um, yeah, they they didn't phase me too much. But it, it, the thing that was annoying about it is we couldn't find the drugs. Mm. Um and so that's, you know, we had the drugs dogs brought in everywhere, looking everywhere, and he was swear, you know, swear down on his kids' lives. He didn't have it. It wasn't him. And this information was good, and we searched, like, everywhere. And then, for some reason, we went back out into the garden, and the dogs picked something up, and we found it under sort of, like, grass turf in a drain pipe. Mm. So it was like, oh, yes, because it was, you know, when you go into those, it like there was two young kids there. There was so you had the the partner screaming, mm. the two young kids upset, the guy swearing down that he hasn't got any drugs, don't know what you're talking about, whatever, and we're like desperate to get a result. Um, and we've done that where we haven't got a result. You know, you know, I, I do look back on that and I feel, you know. That's um, that's a traumatic experience for those kids, you know. Maybe um, I'm being too oversensitive about what I did or whatever, but it's like that's the reality of drugs operations and the effort that's put in to finding them. And again, I remember it because the guy wasn't didn't give a shit about being locked up, you know. Like he was he he had previously was going straight down for maybe four six years or whatever. Um, what he was worried about was how his wife was going to live mm. and how they were going to pay the money back for the drugs that were seized mm. because that debt was now his. So, and, and the trauma on the kids, it's, it's almost state-sanctioned child abuse, isn't it? Like, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, what is level one training for the drug squad? So, um, again, I don't know whether the levels have changed now. I think it, it, it's predominantly, it was level one and level two, two buying. Um, and you 
uh, I, I never did level two. I did level one buying. Level two is basically the next stage up for when you would go somewhere and stay overnight or maybe a week or a month, depending on the level of undercover work you need to do. So level one was, um, it, it was a relatively new course um, that was brought out in a, a reaction to uh, the drugs, the drug scene, how drugs were viewed in the media and public, um, that drugs were bad and we needed to get all the people that dealt off the streets and those using needed to see the error of their ways, if you like. So um, the drug, drug squad was, was set up. I mean, it'd been going a while, but this was like new techniques that were coming in, um, especially to keep up with the organised crime gangs and and how they got drugs into the areas that we worked. And um, so it, it's a week's tra- it was a week's training at headquarters with a group of other people. So you had to do an interview to see if you were suitable and be taken on. Um, and, and I did that, and then I can't remember, there's about, I think there's 12 of us all together, something like that, that did a week's training um, about buying drugs. And then we sort of then we were like on the list of having the training and then we, we we could then potentially get called in to do jobs. Did you already have a bit of that information prior to the training? <laughs> yeah, I would have had a little bit of information. <laughs> um, like at the, uh, you know, at the time, my, um, my drug use was very limited really to um, every now and then. And I knew, I mean, I had other people that I worked with that I knew used illegal drugs. Um, totally contradictory, but it was like, you know, we, we got away with it. And what was that, like rave drugs? Yeah, yeah, me. Ex- yeah. And, and speed was massive Speed, then. yeah, ramp, raps of Billy Wiz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you went into the nightclubs then undercover. What was that like? Um, I've... <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the time. You know, I didn't do a huge amount, you know, like you've interviewed Neil Woods, who sort of done months and months and months and months. Uh, the ones that I did were a lot shorter time and I did a lot of um, cold calling ones as well. But the, um, because I loved, I loved the dance scene and I loved the club scene. Um, and like when I used to go out, I looked completely different to a person than I did in uniform. Like, people just didn't recognise me when I went out. So that was an advantage. Um, and I found it really intriguing and interesting. That whole, All that that world just really interested me. And I sort of... I could be someone completely different because I had to be and pretend to be somebody different, which I was good at doing. Um so I enjoyed it, and I know there's lots. Of, you know, I know there's lots of people that that have done it that have you know PTSD from it. That it's very you know. I don't know whether Neil talked about it and other people. You know, it's it it's it's hard work, and then obviously the people that you are locking up, you look back on that, and that's sort of where my I suppose my remorse and like what the hell did we think we were doing. 
comes in. All right, I'll give you a scenario then. I'll give you, from my own experience, like a club in Manchester, say, in the early days, uh, like the Thunderdome. So you go in the club and there's just people, like, stood around the walls. There's loads of people dancing. There's, like, a corner with the Salford skinheads, you know, and you can see people going and <laughs> coming to and fro, to and fro, picking up pills. A few plaps, random other people around the room you suspect are um, peddling pills. You've entered the premises. You've taken all that in. What's your next move? To find the people that are dealing the drugs. And how would you do it? So it's a bit like that. It's like you know, when you're in that scene, you sort of get an idea of who's most likely going to be the person that's going to have the gear on them or at least the person that... you you know, you notice that, you know, there's quite a few people going up and they're saying hello to, you know, very quickly and then going away. Or that person's going away and then coming back and then other people are coming to them. So, it, and then sometimes, you know, you'd have information and you'd have photographs. So you could sort of like go, all right, that's that person. So if, we, if, if I had a photograph and you could identify the person, that was slightly easier because... You didn't have to, like, then start looking around, right, who is it? Who? Because also you had to be careful because it's like you didn't want to go straight straight to, like, the you know, like, seeing the Salford crew in the corner. It's like you, you know not to do that. You work your way up, even if you sort of an, an, an average clubber and you want to get onto that table because that's the cool table. You know, you have to do it in certain st- unless you really, like, got some balls and you can just go straight up and do it. Um, so, and because I was sort of aware of that scene, it didn't take very long to either work out who it was that was, was, was dealing at the different points or, um, who to ask who they got theirs from. And that was always, that was easy to go to because if you couldn't, if you didn't, nothing was too obvious, you just ask somebody like, you know, what? Where's 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 the you know where's the party at in this place then you know have you got anything? All right, before you reach that point, then from what you describe, my interpretation is you, you, the strategy is to try and blend in first. Yeah. So does that mean you get up and dance, you jump on a speaker, you drop an ecstasy <laughs> pill? How do you blend in? Well, no, because um, you weren't allowed to take illicit drugs unless it was um, you know life threatening situation um you know you weren't supposed to just you know take drugs for it that's that's the line that we I know in reality that is different I actually didn't take illicit drugs when I was doing that work on that night sort of thing if you know what I mean but things though we all we all before we did this we'd go for like um uh you'd have to have like a oh god what's the word I'm looking for like a meet about it before we'd go into the club. So we'd meet some run, some pub somewhere, have a few drinks, you know, get the the nice warm fuzzy feeling. Oh, so you were an alcohol then at least? Yes, okay. you could. Although again, you had to be really careful of not getting too pissed because you're supposed to be gathering evidence and remembering. And again, that didn't always work out. <laughs> um, so so you go that and, and any information that you got, you know, so if you if you did get a photograph or whatever, you could 
then target the person and you'd have a few drinks and um and then we'd sort of you know you had a little bit of time to psych yourself up so like or, or like play some music so like we used to play um Faithless, I can't get no sleep. <laughs> it's like our can't get no sleep. sleep. That was like our um, before before we went in anthem, if you like. <laughs> yeah. Um, Stood the test of time. That it one has it's had various remixes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, like you're saying, go in and see what you could get you know it really was like okay go in and see what you can get but obviously you know um the more ecstasy or like cocaine so you know based on on the classes you know class a drugs is what they were interested in because that um looked better meant that the person persons involved would get more time stats stats are you going in solo or does the team go in together well, and are you hanging out together? Or? So, in, so like I said, in a, in a club that we did in uh, Whitley Bay, there was about, I think it was about, there's four or five females involved in it. But but so it'd be like a group of three and a group of two. Um, and we'd go in at different times and um, have different times. Sort of basically work different parts of the club because it was quite you know it was a big club as well um so we'd go in at different times and you know it's quite easy for two girls and three girls to meet meet in a club and start talking you know so it didn't look uh suspicious and also as well it's sort of like I think females managed to do that a bit easier and better than men a lot of the time and obviously the way it was that at the time the people in the clubs selling the drugs were mostly male. So obviously, and as a female, it was a little bit easier to sweet talk them into giving you something when they didn't know who you were. Like, because again, it's, it's that they have to be careful who they're selling to and they don't know you. So again, that is why we went in sort of week after week to build up information and and it looked, it was a better case as well rather than just like, oh, it was only that night I was selling it. Rather than actually, you know, it's actually over the past three months you've been. Do the club owners have to know this operation is happening no. on their premises? And are you taking equipment in with you, hidden, like, stuff? No, I did um, I did do jobs when I was mic'd up. Yeah. Um, but that was actually on the jobs when I was sent in on my own. Because mm. then that would um, collaborate the evidence of... Him dealing me drugs. Oh, was that in a house? Yeah. You went yes. in your, on your own so into a few, house? Yeah. Cool, mic'd up? Yeah, cool, cool. And what what was it like in the house? Was it just one person there or...? Uh, it, it varied. There was usually a couple of people. There's usually a couple of people, um, you know, sitting on the sofa playing on Xbox um, or whatever the computer game was at the time. wouldn't be Xbox, would it? Um Generally males, although there was, there was a couple that I did where it wasn't, it was just like, you know, an everyday couple. Um, in the afternoon, depending again on the information, quite often it was information from people that were arrested and a taxi driver that was dropping people off at a certain address. Um, and, you know, some of those came to nothing. 
it was just information that we got. But, you know, it did mean that I, you know, I had to get a mic hidden microphone on me, go in, start a conversation and get it round to him, supply me with some drugs. So Neil Wood said that one of the things that crushed his idealism was going undercover with the low-level users to try and work his way up the mm -hmm. chain and hearing their sad stories. And then when the, you know, he thought, right, this, we're going to get the big guys here. But when all the arrests went down, predominantly the majority of the arrests were the low-level users mm -hmm. that he'd been undercover with and hearing their sad stories, and it broke his heart. When the arrests went down in your cases, how would you categorise who was arrested? So in the, in the jobs that I did, it was um, it was more to do with I'd say low level dealers. The ones in the clubs were probably a little bit above that, if you like. Um, so I actually didn't have much to do with uh, sort of like the, the street drugs and homeless people, but. On reflection, like saying, when I look back at, at like, who who did I arrest, really? And it ended up, it was um, generally the people in, in, in the clubs were people that were unemployed and they could make money doing this, um, weren't bad people as such. It was the way that they made a living. Okay, yeah, they were involved in... A few of them were then involved in sort of like the higher organised crime gangs sort of related to the big families in the area. But um, those who were sort of like arrested and convicted tended to be, like, like I said, you know, those that were working in the clubs, it was the job, that's how they earned the money. The people, like when I called, called on people, they, again, were either unemployed and that's how they paid their bills or it's how they supplemented their wages because the money that they earned wasn't enough to pay for whatever. Um, you know, I never knocked on a house that had its own drive and the, and the Range Rovers are parked outside and gold taps. You know, that didn't happen. I'm talking about calling on houses that had the windows boarded up with wood that you know didn't have any carpets locks on their the food stores sort of thing so quite desperate people then yeah people i know that might be hard for some people to understand but you know like oh you always have a choice you know you don't have to do that you could, but you know and again this is the problem with um the drugs market is there's so much money in it and they and people can earn a decent amount of money to live in the short term in before the short they pay term, the price in the short term before you know they're arrested and criminalized um but you know again it's that cycle that you go back to of so and you know some of the people's where we where we did the operations like say you know the windows are boarded up with wood or you know no carpets um you know these are people that generally have a criminal record for other stuff that have no qualifications, been kicked out of school, um, you know, not particularly a healthy upbringing as a child. 
that that that, that doesn't have those options. You know, I think it's it's from a place of privilege when people say they they made bad choices or they don't have to do that. It's like, well, actually, what do you suggest that they do? And then I suppose people say, go, go to school, get qualifications, do this. It's like, yeah, but some of the people can't read or write or or very poorly. How? And I think, you know, for, for me, it's like people, I would look, like people to look upon say as victims it may be a strong word for some people to take on but um have a bit more empathy and compassion you know this system and this drug policy that we have and drugs um we need to flip it completely and approach it from a completely different angle to what we're doing what we're still doing what we did then in the 90s to what we're doing now so looking back then, did you have shame and guilt? At, at the time, I didn't, you know. I I was doing, I was upholding the law, I was doing my job, um, I was getting results, so I was quite, I was okay with what I was doing at the time. Again, like you're saying, you know, hindsight is a great thing, but, you know, I have that hindsight now to look back and... You know, it's a bit it's a bit, it's a bit depressing sometimes when I think I didn't make any difference. You know, I didn't make a, even a dent in the drug supply or demand or um, get really, really dangerous people off the street. The drugs always keeps flowing. My realisation was I've written a number of books about Pablo Escobar. Mm. So researching when he started in the late 70s, he could source a kilo of coca paste for $60 from Peru or Bolivia. And because of drug laws, it was going for 60000 a kilo in America. So drug laws made plants that were worthless more valuable than gold. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter if they arrest Escobar, Cali Cartel, Chapo. That money, that profit margin, the drugs it will just always keep flowing because of of laws have created the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world for organised crime to flood the entire world with drugs and it gets worse every year. Mm. I interviewed um, a doctor out of Canada just last month and he said, I wish we could go back to the good old days of heroin because it's, the, the black market gets stronger <clears throat> and we've got the fentanyl and all. Uh, what's it going to take? If, if, if fentanyl... Isn't bad enough. Are we just going to keep it going and have something worse than fentanyl? Yeah, it's it's scary. I think it's yeah because what will be the end point? Yeah, what is going to be the end point? And it's like when when will will law enforcement law enforcement they don't make the laws, but the lawmakers when will they not realise that prohibiting anything automatically creates a massive black market and a business for an organised crime gang to to latch on to. You know, it's a bit like um, menthol cigarettes. You know, they, they've banned those now in Europe. And and I, I smoke and I smoke menthol and it's just like, oh, my God, how am I going to do that? And there's just, oh, you know, I buy filters now. I've got, you know, it, it's, I mean, that's maybe not a good analogy. It's just sort of that by banning something... 
doesn't mean like people stop using it and people stop supplying it. Oh, it's bad. You know, as soon as you've banned something, it's like that is a great gap in the market. And how can I fill that? It's an iron law of economics. And I think it was The Economist Milton Friedman who wrote to George H.W. Bush and warned the policy is going to create all these bad things, but completely disregarded. How did you find out about Leap? So I'd, <clears throat> um, I didn't realise I was interested in, in drug reform until I got into recovery. So um, I'd had, it was about four years in recovery, so in recovery from alcohol and other drugs, that um, I, was, I was with a friend and we'd started another organisation looking at what are the biggest barriers um, that stop people getting into recovery and maintaining recovery. Because um, a lot of people get t small chunks of recovery, but actually maintaining recovery is quite hard. Um, and particularly um, within the groups in recovery that use illicit drugs, because, um, you know, when we talk about problematic substance use, it's, um, we tend to have drugs of choice. And that is just something that you lean towards that's your medicine that stops the pain that you medicate on. So whether that's alcohol, whether that's uh, cocaine, whether it's heroin, whatever your drug of choice is or anything um, that um, predominantly, you know, and the snobbery amongst that, you know, um, and, and those that happened, unfortunately, to get onto illicit substances, um, because they were criminalised for that, that once in recovery, and you, when you're in recovery and you're living life and you want to do better and progress in life, which for some, it's like going back to school or um, going to college, getting a job, um, you know, just making application forms out to do voluntary work even, they can't because they've got a criminal record with illicit drugs, which never gets taken off your record. Um, and because life's hard and then life is harder and then it becomes you can't see a way forward with that, for some people relapse and they die. Um, and it's just... It's it's just crazy. It makes it's crazy. So, so basically, we're looking at that, and we saw how much um, the drug policies affected people. And you know, we're talking about people that were predominantly ill. You know, they have an illness, and you know, for me, it I di I didn't understand what was wrong. You know, like saying talk about I didn't understand what was wrong with me in the school days. I didn't understand what was wrong with me that I was actually ill, that I couldn't stop drinking or using. Did it progress as you went further into the police? Did your drug... No. Drug, when, when did this Mine start to get actually, heavy? It's... And, and how long were you in the police for and why did you quit? So I was in for just over five years. Okay. So you were still in your 20s when you came out. Yeah, late yeah. 20s. And I actually took a career break because I um, went back to university. Okay. What were you studying this time? Fashion. Fashion? <laughs> Eclectic. <laughs> I say jack of all trades. Yeah. Um, and 
that actually that first year I went to uni, I got married, went to uni, got pregnant. So it was quite a full on year. So was it having a family then that made you not want to be in the police? Was that a factor? Yeah. So, you know, ideally when I did my fashion career, that's what I would have liked to have done in my naivety. But the practicalities were that um, I had one child, one young child. I'd just done another four year degree, full time degree and needed to pay bills. Um, And I and I and I just couldn't go back to the police force. I, there was just something that I couldn't do the job that I did. Now I had children. I, I, I just, it's like, I don't know whether I'd just lose my shit with people, um, probably, you know, do something to somebody that's done bad things. You know, I, 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 and I, I just, I was frustrated with it. I think, I think, um, the, the frustration of, all the time and energy that police officers put into, um, say, you know, maybe arresting someone and putting a, you know, there's a lot of work that goes around getting someone to court and, like, say, say, Crown Court so for serious offences, and then through a technicality, them getting off, knowing that they're, and I mean, and I know that doesn't happen all the time. But, you know, it does happen quite a lot. And I just, th- you know, the law's an ass. And, and I think I just started, I just thought I just couldn't do that again. So I actually went da- back and did PE teaching because it fitted in with having young kids um, and my husband's um, job. He decided to go self-employed. So it's just the boring factors of having a young family and paying bills. What led then to the um, alcohol abuse exacerbating? So, when you know, I look back on it, and it and it can be quite blurry. It's like I, like when did I go from coming in from work, having a glass of wine, just you know, just to like like loads of people do, like my friends do, to that. I didn't want any any sense of reality. I could not bear coming round and being present, like, because of guilt, shame of what I'd done, of what I'd become. You know, it, it's a really blurry line of from that to a 24-7 drinker, and I became a 24-7 drinker. I didn't want any sense of reality. I just could not cope with it. All right, so a lot of people say becoming a parent you know, snapped them out of the lifestyle of drugs and partying. So this is unusual because you've got, like, an inverse trajectory. So you said, you know, you said I didn't like what I'd become, but prior to that, you've you know you've quit the cops, you've got a family, you've achieved a lot of you know really important things. You've got kids. When you say you didn't like what you become, what did you become? Um, I, I think you know I was I was very sort of dissatisfied. I felt unaccom- unaccomplished and. Uh, 
I didn't really get the point of what what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? With, you know, uh, what, what I would love is, is, is a book with a list of instructions that this is what I've got to do to have a nice, happy, content life and, I don't know, live happily ever after or whatever it is. Um, and again, you know, those feelings of um, low self-worth and not enough just grew. And I think because I, I, I think I felt frustrated because, you know, I'd left the police and um, I'd done a degree in fashion, which I loved. But the practicalities of life, I felt that, you know, to pay bills and um, I had to go back to teaching and I couldn't follow the fashion and I had a had a child. And, you know, I... I'm. I didn't get a massive maternal feeling, you know. I I I love both my sons very very much, um, but I found it extremely hard. It didn't come naturally to me, and I think it's it was that almost that alter ego in me that wanted to be this, to be something. Not sure what, but this the reality of this wasn't what I wanted to be, and. Um, so, you know, I, I started drinking more and more and I was drinking probably towards the end of my university. I was drinking like half a bottle of wine a night, maybe even a bottle in the last year. But that was like, you know, a really high pressure stress for me. And once I'd finished it, it would get easier. And it sort of, and it did. But then I had um, my second son. And after that, that sort of went... I say, you know, I, I find it really difficult to remember that that blurry line of a bottle a night, a bottle of wine a night, which I know a lot of people do do. People, you know, I've got friends that, but but what it is, is they don't have the negative consequences that I ended up having. I was like on a self-destruct of, um, I, I didn't want to live anymore. What age are we talking at this point of the story? So that age, that will have been, um, well, about 35. Right, mid-30s then. You have an, an existential crisis. <laughs> yeah, that's a way of putting it. You're overwhelmed by all Life. of all of the things. You've suddenly got all these responsibilities, family, bills, job. And I can see all those, those the, the, the pressure and the stresses must be building up. And, and then you're thinking... It's, it all goes when you have a drink. Yeah, I'm, I mean... I'm, I'm liberated from that stress it, temporarily. It was, it, it was the answer. You know, alcohol was my friend, you know, and, and the drugs that I used were my friend. They worked for me for a long time. They made me feel great, and I had some great times. But, you know, for me, it was... It it didn't end like that, and, and it just... I went over that that line of um, from using it to numb my feelings and get through to numbing my feelings 24-7 because I couldn't cope with how I felt. And that, in, you know, and that was with consequences of, of, of my drinking, you know, the negative consequences, the consequences to my family, how I was with my sons, um, what I did. You know, I ended up... You know, I'm quite open about that, that I ended up in a police cell being arrested by people I used to work with. Good grief. Um, what, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> Whoa, what led to that? And can you run us through 
how that the actual arrest came about? Um, well, a couple of them I can't even. I don't even know what happened because I was in blackout. Um, so, uh, one of the ones I can't remember because I was in, in complete blackout, and I still don't know to this day. Because there's because there is you know when you're doing drugs and alcohol, when you're abusing it, there's a crossover line, isn't it, where you start losing your memory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, your blackout is is. Um, some people don't really know what that. I mean, I didn't really know what blackout was. I thought you know, you know like it's where you wake up and you don't know what's what's happened. Yeah, but actually, when you're in blackout, you function as you normally would. So, like, um, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, and um, it's hard because you know sometimes I went into blackout when I was looking after my kids. Mm. And you know that feeling when when I wake up, and I have and it was literally, where are they? What have I done? And then and and you piece together that they've been fed because there's remnants of food. They're in the bed and they're in the pajamas. You know you function, but you've just got no awareness of it. And again, you wake up, and I do that. I feel an overwhelming sense of guilt. And because the nature of it is I can't cope with those feelings, I don't know where, what to do with them, I'll just I'll have a drink. And then it's never just one drink. And then another one and, and another one. And, you know, and again, you know, that... You know, people people will judge me because, you know, I'm a mother and why couldn't I stop drinking for my kids? You know, that's the classic, you know, and, it, and it, you know, it's like, and I used to drink on that because it, it, it would, it would, it would kill me because it's like, why can't I stop because of my kids? You know, normal people, normal people would do that. And I, you know, and, and that is the, the cunning, baffling, powerful disease that addiction is that we keep medicating and medicating even with negative consequences those negative consequences aren't enough to stop us and you know I, I wouldn't wish you know addiction on anybody I'm sure people watching this appreciate your honesty and life is never plain sailing we're all going through things mm. to various degrees um, your arrest then what happened there which one? <laughs> Which one? I know it's not. Small you know, serial offender. It's a real. It's a real sort of like how dark many, comedy in uh, it all. How of, many arrests were there? I uh, think sevenish. Over what period of time? Uh, about three year period. It's all Bender related then. Yeah, yeah. I was always had something in my system. Would you just wake up in the cells and be like, "How did I get here?" Or did you know what no, you'd actually few, done? A few of them were. Again, this is you know not to be recommended by any stretch and I'm not proud of it at all but yeah. this is where the illness takes you of um, drunk under the influence of drink driving uh, shoplifting was a good one for me I just go on a bender and go shoplifting um, and drunk and disorderly um, was one that that happened in blackout and I don't I don't remember to this day what happened I just woke up in a cell 
And my first thought was, where are my shoes? <laughs> I, know, you know, I know, it sounds crazy. It's like I'm in a police cell. Where the fuck are my shoes? Um, um, and I had bruises all over my wrists and um, I got charged with drug and disorderly. I got fined. I got an £80 fine. But again, the guy, the Christie Sergeant, I knew him. Um, I used to actually go to school. He was in the year above me at school and he worked on a, in a station near me and my brother-in-law came to the cell um, to see me for another time. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I've had my DNA taken and photographed a few times. And So, with your own former colleagues then, having to interact with them under these circumstances, <clears throat> were they like, Suzanne, what's going on with you? Snap I, out of this. I, were they trying to like... They, they, just, they just didn't know what to say. Yeah. And I think... I think people don't. I mean, that's another part of the issue. The, mm. People do not know what to say to someone that's... Actually, on, on that one as well, with the drunken disorderly, I got arrested twice that night because... Why is it the same night? Because I, I left the, I left the um, police station and I was like, oh, fucking hell, it's four o'clock in the morning, now I'm going to get, you know, you know, ridiculous thinking. And then this car sort of came past me and someone said something, I went, oh, fuck off. And it was a police car. And they came and talked to me and I was arsy and they rearrested me for public order. So were drugs involved increasing? I know you said you did ecstasy earlier on. Were you getting involved in like coke or anything else at this point? With the... I mean, I, I did it on nights out and it was always... Um, it was because it was there and with the people that I was with, they offered me it and I took it. And, you know, and I would have taken anything, to be honest. Um, but for me, predominantly, it, it was alcohol that brought me to my knees. Those, are, you know, and it stops working. You know, the, the crazy thing as well, like... Tolerance. Yeah, and and also as well, with Coke, it, it wakes you up again. So it's like, it wakes you up again to drink more. So, and I wanted blackout, so it was like, I'll just... You wanted the abyss, yeah, the yeah. void. All right, so earlier on you said... You, you you were suicidal, you wanted to die. Mm -hmm. Were you able to discuss that with your husband? No, I didn't. Did you hide this from everybody? You had to be the strong mum, the public persona. I hid it. And again, that that, that is the, um, the cunningness of the disease is we can hide it really well for a certain amount of time. And, you know, and, and I have to highlight as well, it doesn't get. It doesn't have to get as bad as it did for me. You know, I did. My consequences got really severe. You know, there's lots of people that got into recovery that didn't have to go that far down the path. But you know, that is where my path led me. And um, you know, I hid it for a while, and then I couldn't really hide it anymore because I was talking about twenty four seven drinking um, and the things that I did. You know, got arrested for drink driving, um, and where where it took to me was that um, I tried to kill myself, and I tried to do that a few times, and through substance abuse, through alcohol, or um, alcohol and taking loads of tablets. Tablets. It was um, 
it's like when those people say, you know, oh, is that a cry for help? It's like, fucking hell. Um, no, because I wanted her to die. You know, and, and again, people find it really difficult to get their head, you know, you don't have to get your head around it. You know, I felt, I truly honestly felt, and again, that's partly to do with um, stigma and shame and society. You know, I, I, I couldn't look after myself. I couldn't look after my two children. When I did, I mm -hmm. fucked it up, um, acted irresponsibly. Um, I can't stop drinking. I don't know how to stop drinking. I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know where to go for help or what to do. I'd just rather be dead. It's going to be simpler if I'm dead. And I know it's, a, you know, now I look back and go, God, thank God, you know, I, I didn't die. Um, but that that's where it took me. And I, and I couldn't see another way out. So three long years then of turbulence and seven arrests what was your relationship with your husband like over this period of time as it you, uh, know, you know he's um don't <laughs> say tony he's uh he's still there he's still, he's still there. there he put shout up, out to tony yeah yeah you know what he put up with and this again this is like with um you know my my we, we push we push and push and push the boundaries um, and he put up with a lot of shit until, you know, he, he couldn't do it anymore and, he, you know, he couldn't trust me with the kids and he couldn't, you know, I don't blame him. Um, so he asked me to leave the home and I left the home. Where did uh, you go? So, um, it... <laughs> it's uh, It was to my advantage in some respect. Well, do you know what? When he did that, I was like, great. I can drink what I want, do what I want. You know, this is the craziness of, of, of when you're in it, that's what you think. I haven't got them on my back. I haven't got the responsibility. So um, I went and got off my head, woke up somewhere, and I stayed in a room in a house. And because I was then now then technically homeless... It meant I could get a place in a rehab. Because the problem being is it's not that I hadn't asked for that before. It's because I had a roof over my head and a house to live in. I wasn't seen as um, desperate. Um, and if anybody listening knows anything about treatment system and, and services, you know, in the UK, the treatment and the services are very, very stretched. Like in the northeast of England, we don't have one residential rehab so what that meant is I got an opportunity to go to a rehab in sunny Scarborough mm. <laughs> which you know um you know it's, it's funny because like in the recovery people can get a bit jealous if you got the opportunity to go to rehab it's awful you, you don't want to go to rehab what's your first day like At rehab mm -hmm. um so this place saved my life, you know. Um, it gave me a roof over my head and gave me space. Um, it was like being in a bad B&B. &B. It was like faulty towers with loads of, you know, alcohol and, and drug users trying to get recovery. Well, we, you know, we were all held in this place. We weren't allowed out 
until we got to a certain stage, then we were allowed out. Um, it was crazy. It was, oh. Did you get your own room? And, no. Like, well. How does it work? So the first night I was there, um, I got a room on my own with a nice sort of bay window. And I was like, it's all right. But then the next day I got um, moved out to this floor um, and it, it was a mixed mixed um, rehab and I, I ended up sharing a, a room with a woman. And what was her story? Her, again, uh, she was um, a mother of four, um, chronic alcoholic. Did you bond with her? Yeah, well, yeah. I think... I'm, I'm quite, I'm good at sort of adapting to different people from different places and different areas. And, you know, so I, I sort of, I, I think I can get on with most people. I'm not saying they all get on with me, but so, you know, I didn't go in there thinking I was any better or any worse. It was just like a bit, we were both a bit like, how the fuck did we end up here? Um, and, oh, but it's crazy. We're, yeah. So you're completely sober in there on that first day. Is like the bottle calling your name? How how do you get through the pain barrier? <clears throat> yeah. Um, I was ready for rehab. Well, saying that, um, it was just, this is what I have to do to get well. You know, and that that's the problem with, um, when you're in it, when, you know, and I'm very much, I'm open to what recovery looks like for, for people. Um, for me, recovery means abstinence because my using and drinking, I know that I can't just have one drink. I know I wouldn't be able to go out and do a line or drop, you know, one, um, you know, one E or anything like that because I always you know I have a, I have an, an addiction of more I want more of and I can get like that with, with other stuff as well so um I uh I've forgotten what I was saying then <laughs> what were we talking about then I asked you I was, I was, if the bottle was calling oh, right, yeah, and how you sorry, got through the pain barrier yeah sorry do you know why I was just like I was back in that B&B <laughs> in Scarborough just remembering it because it was just like good take us there tell us what you're oh, thinking so it was just like oh, what the fuck it's just it's minging like it smells funny or it's, just, it's, it's, it's old and decrepit it's, it's like a really naff B&B that like you know god I, like, and I'll sound like a right snob because I was looking at it like a snob like oh my really um you know like tatty chairs and sofas to sit on um frayed carpets uh, I mean it, maybe I'm was, yeah and it was just like and it was just it's just so, you know so it your timetable to everything you know you have to you have to go to breakfast you have to be here at certain times you have to do this which again I mean like how else are you supposed to run a place like that um everything's timetabled and you're on a rotor and you have cleaning jobs and then and you get you get made head of the person that delegates who does the cleaning jobs so you got people that would put people on toilets because they didn't like them and and then if you did something wrong you get put on toilets again um what was your first job 
Um, I think my first job was actually cleaning the kitchens. So it was, it was all right. I mean, I didn't mind. It was just like, it was almost like a penance. You know, just, you know I just, <laughs> this is what I deserve and this is how, this is how we do it. And, and you know, and you go and, and it, so it's abstinence based. So it was based around um, a 12 step program, which is quite common. I think most people know about that. <clears throat> um, you know, like and I was saying, you know, I'm quite now, my, my view on recovery has changed just like my view on, on drug reform because, um, you know, it worked for me. I have to be abstinence-based. I would recommend anybody to have a period of time abstinence from whatever's causing them issue issues. But, you know, I've, I've got friends that are in recovery that, um, you know, that, that do psychedelics, for example, um, more more to do with their mental health and spiritual side. I've, I know people that can do um, a spliff on a weekend when their substance of choice was like alcohol and stuff. And and that's great for them. The only problem being is if they, you know, because they, these are often seen as a cult, you know, that's the thing, that, you know, AA, NA, and those mutual aid groups are seen as cults. They're, they're, they're not. But it, it's the one thing that worked for me. I have to sort of fast forward there and say I did get chucked out of rehab because I did relapse in rehab. Ah. Um, well, what led to the quite... moment of relapse? Uh, I think because part of me wasn't being completely honest, as in I, I hadn't had enough, which is crazy when, when I look back at, you know, at what I'd done previously and ended up there. Um... Uh, it was a sunny day. We were allowed out after a certain level. You, you're allowed out. <sighs> God, this is going to sound really ridiculous. I went and bought some. I got out. Why I remember this? I went and bought a crawfish salad from Marks and Spencers. And the thing that would make it better was a little bottle of wine, sitting on a bench, like what like what normal people do. And that was it. That was your justification, like normal. What normal people what do. What normal people do, and yeah. and it would make it better. Yeah, you know that make me, you know, and maybe I can do, maybe I can drink like normal mm. people because that's what I didn't want to have to stop everything. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like the problem with recovery is you get your feelings back, and the only way I ever knew how to cope with those feelings before were to numb them. So you know, from that, I managed, I got away with it for a while. But then I didn't, and I was in blackout and was found outside the rehab. And mm. um, and, and again, this is the problem with treatments, is you, you basically get a chance, and if you blow it, you're out. So I got, um, I woke up to my bags packed and uh, a ticket home. How did that feel? Oh, it's, it's devastating. You, you know, it was just like, oh, God, I can feel it now. Just the waking up going, oh, fuck, fuck, what have I done? And what am I going to do? And so I did the only thing I knew what to do, which was take my bag, go and get drunk and get a train home and turn up at my sister's. Hmm. And were you thinking about what your husband might think of you getting Oh, yeah, yeah. I just, you know, like, I've let everybody down. Um, You know, I've just, you know... 
so worthless that I've blown, I've blown my chance. Um, yeah, I won't be allowed back home. I won't be allowed to see the kids. What am I gonna, what am I gonna do? I can't do it. It's too hard. I can't do it. I obviously can't do it because I can't do it in rehab. How long did it take to snap out of that? That, um, so I got chucked out in October and I had my last drink on the 14th of November that year. So it was October, so probably another month and a half. Because you've already been kicked out once, to get back in, is it trickier? You can't get back in. Oh, you can't get back in. That's how it was working where I was. What I, yeah. what, what, um, I'd, I'd, I'd been going to, um, you know, like I say, the 12 set program, it's, it's an anonymous program, but, um, you know, I'm quite open about that is how I got my sobriety. Um, I'd been going to meetings, um, and, um, one woman in particular was, was really helpful to me. She gave me a number to ring to get into rehab. And um, she'd connected me to this guy um, who was like a really, he was, he was a great social worker who, who wasn't in recovery, but he just sort of got it. He understood the illness and what it meant, where people end up. And he got me into like a sheltered housing um, but then I got caught drinking, so I got, um, it actually, that was my last, my last drink because I'd actually arranged for, um, my kids to stay over. Um, and I drank the night before, which again is, is that a massive self-sabotage? Uh, I have, I have that mass, I did have a massive self-sabotage in me that, you know, I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. So I'm going to. I'm going to fuck it up, so I'll drink, because then I'll fuck it up. And then that will also reaffirm that I'm useless, I'm a waste of space, I'm unlovable, I don't belong anywhere, and that'll re reaffirm it. So I did that, and then because of that, I couldn't have my kids. You know, I wasn't allowed to see them. So... Um, that was the, how old are your kids at this stage, and the, how are they, how are they God, reacting to all them. of this? Oh, bless them! Ethan would be about four, and Mitchell will be about eight. Aren't they like where the bloody hell's mum gone? Yeah, I don't. Yeah, that's the um, you know makes me feel sick thinking about it. That and that and that's what the illness does. It's I you know you. You're in such a, you, it's like your own, your own prison cell, your own prison cell, and, and you don't think about other people. You know, it's a selfish illness. It is. Um, and, but I, and I, and I just didn't see any, any, any way out. You know, I, and that was like the last straw that I'd let them down so much. And then I wasn't allowed to see them. That was actually my last attempt to kill myself. Oh, dear. Um, Again, through the pills and the drink. Yeah, just anything, anything that, that I, <sighs> and I went missing. Um, I don't remember this. This is like, and it was actually my, um, a guy, well, this is, this is, this is what I'm pieced together is it was actually a guy I did my police training with 
who was an inspector on the shift when I went missing, who found me in a back alley. Good grief. Um, because I'd, I'd, um, I didn't want to be found and I wanted to die. So I remember speaking to my sponsor, um, you know, some dramatic way. And then I wandered off and I went, then I went into blackout and I was found down a back alley by the police. Um, I think he was a, an inspector by then who I used to work with. And, you know, part of me, it's like, you know, my God, it's a miracle because I think if it had been anybody else that didn't know me, they probably would have gone, well, she's an adult, she's a missing person. See if she turns up. She might, she might not, or she'll turn up somewhere. And um, I might have completely made that up, but, you know, but he looked for me and he found me and I got into hospital and then I had my light bulb moment. What went through your head? When I woke up, well, I couldn't believe I was there and my sponsor came to see me and she said, well, it could have been worse. It could have been me. <laughs> Just like, fuck off. <laughs> you know, got tubes coming out of me and, you know, but actually her drinking took her to a lot worse place, you know, sclerosis of the liver and, you know, months to live. And But she lived and her liver's repaired and mm. she's like 25 years I think, in recovery. But it was actually, um, uh, you you get an assessment. So I, I end up sitting in front of this guy. I can't remember if he's a psychiatrist or psychologist. And I'd seen him before for my mental health. Because, you know, ongoing was um, depression. You know, do you drink because you're depressed? You're depressed because you drink. You know, that, that chicken and egg. And at the time, all I wanted was to be kept in in the hospital bed, you know, like, because then I couldn't do anything wrong. I wouldn't make a mistake. I wouldn't do something that would end with me picking up a drink. Um, but, you know, NHS is under pressure and all the rest of it. And I sat in front of him and he basically said, well, you're not ill enough to be kept in. And I was just like, I'm not ill enough. Like, you know, you're talking... Now, you know, this is like the seventh time I attempt on my life. My medical rec my re medical records are like this now. Um, what 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 do I have to do to to be sectioned? You know, that's you know that was a good option to me. To be sectioned would would be like yes. But then you know when he said it, it was literally a light bulb moment of like, I've got two choices here. I either keep doing this. And I will end up dead. Or I can try this AA 12 steps and I'll do everything that I'm told to do. And I chose to do that. And it'll be 13 years in November that I made that, that choice. And was it put, what you put your kids through that gave you the strength as well? Was that a factor to, to, to do all that? <clears throat> it is... I I still um you, you know because 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 of what I know now in childhood trauma and like it kind of makes me feel really emotional that 
Um, Ethan, my younger one, doesn't really remember. He was too young. Mitchell does and will. And, um, you know, and again, back to what we said in the beginning, nature, nurture, geneticas. In our family, there is history of addiction, and I've got no idea whether that may come out in my two children. I hope not, and I hope... Um, the way they've supported that it won't, but, but who knows. But what I found was because I'd been going to meetings and, and because of what my sponsor had been through, you know, she, she herself was um, a chronic alcoholic with two young children, did the same, did, had done the same as me. Um, she got through it and she'd survived and her children have, you know, grown up. That, that gave me hope that I didn't know how, why or who, but maybe I could. Um, and because of that, I think that it's it's made me a better person. It's made me a better mother, wife, friend, because it is that it it's that learning the um, you know, I am worthy. I am lovable and um, and I'm enough. And I never felt that before. You know, it's like, that's why I get so emotional with it because I know so many people feel the same. And, and not everybody ends up being a 24-7 drinker and, and drug user. There's people watching this right now relating and they're exactly in mm. that zone, what you're describing. Mm. And and, I, listen, so, and, I've, and I've done a lot of work on myself, you know, it, it is the hardest thing I have ever, ever had to do. You know, like fighting criminals, going into a club, going to a house, wired up, you know, all that stuff. It's a piece of piss compared to what I had to do in recovery and to maintain recovery. It's not, it's not crushing every day, but it's hard work because... I get my life back, which is great, but I get my life back and I get all the feelings and I do not have that option to be able to turn my feelings off when I'm hurt and upset or angry or, you know, happy, sad, all those emotions. You know, when someone does me a wrong, I can't like, you know, I have, I have to keep my side of the street clean. And I have to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not because I want to, um, I, because I can't pick up a drink or drug on it. I, you know, I was like, oh God, I wish I could. I wish. I, you know what? I wish I could. Sometimes it's just, God, I wish I could, you know, just take something and so I can just chill out, so I can just fucking shut this head up. But, you know... What I've been given is the tools to do that, and 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 the whole thing of it, I think, is for people. It and and we all have different journeys, and we all have different experiences, and we all have traumas. But um, I've had, I can see them for what they are, and I don't let them then shape my future. You know, I've got that's my power. I've the only thing that I have control over is me. 
like what you think of me, what people out there listening in think of me, or even if they tweet it or whatever, I have no control over. The only thing I control is me. And again, that's really hard when it's all about self-worth and loving and be- belonging and connection when you you believe that you don't have it. You have to do that yourself, and that's that's the hard work. That's the the self. I'm enough work is really, really hard, but it's really, really worth it. But I'm not perfect at it by any stretch. So these experiences then have given you this deep understanding of the cycle of addiction, and because of the extremes you've gone to, it's what makes what you're saying is really powerful. So to people out there. Who are perhaps going through blackouts and stuff like that? What what do you say to them? I knew, um, like, like one of the really interesting things that I I learn is you know obviously we all have substances of choice, and you know ninety percent of people that use illicit drugs don't cause any negative problems or consequences to them or anyone else 10% of those do and then even a smaller percent end up sort of like me you know or you're on the streets injecting heroin or whatever the first thing is is it's like it's that honest debate you have to be with yourself of is this causing me a problem is this causing negative consequences to those that I love and are closest to me you know, and, and that can be, you know, you can start with work, you know, going into work. I don't have to tell you that. You, you, people listening in, know whether it's a problem or not. And then, do you want to do something about it? Um, so acknowledgement is the first thing. And that, that, that was my problem. Honest. I um, had a therapist in prison. And I'd been doing drugs for over 10 years and I've just been telling myself, I'm just going out on the weekends having fun. I'm a party person, I'll never get addicted. And um, I was telling myself that even by the time the SWAT team came, like over 10 years later. <laughs> and the therapist said, Sean, you know you've got addiction issues when it starts to affect your life and your work. Because he said to me, are you a drug addict? I said, no. I just went out and partied on the weekends. And he's like, well, you know, you've got addiction issues when it affects your life and your, and your work and your family, your relationships. Take a look around you right now. Where are you? <laughs> and that was, that was the wake-up call I needed. Because like, I, I was in denial for, for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. So you've got to acknowledge. So your first point then is to acknowledge that you've got the problem, the issue. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to have the the resolve to do something about it, you know, haven't it, you? Which is hard. It's You know, you have to be, you know, lots of to do with you know, working on self and stuff like is, you know, we have, to, we have to be vulnerable, which I mean by... It, I made myself vulnerable by saying, you know, I, I have a problem. I have a problem with alcohol or drugs. Because of, you know, and all the stigma and shame that's attached to that, but you have to dig deep and find the courage to ask for help and support. Again, you, you know, again, it, it, it's not unfortunately it's not that simple because 
it's not always there. And where do you go? And what do you like saying? I, I, I didn't know what was wrong with me. You know, because, because yeah, even though I knew I had a problem with alcohol, I wasn't an alcoholic because that's, that's alkies and people drinking on benches and, you know, drugs weren't, you know, I'm, I'm, I might be all right using drugs because it's alcohol, not the drugs. I actually, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, and, and you like saying drug addicts is that that shame shaming teethless homeless people who sleep under bridges. Yeah, that's what me. I thought a drug addict was. Not 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 me. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, that snobbery within it, and um, and you know, unfortunately, you know there are people that do fit that 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 image. You know that unfortunately through life has led them down that path to where they are but you know it starts with it's an illness it's an illness that's treatable and there's solutions but very few people know about them and and it is one of the most stigmatized judged illnesses that's out there and misunderstood by people because they think it's a moral um judgment it's a it's it's a choice you know you have a they don't get that when you're in it you have no choice. You know, it, it, it's your medicine. It's it's your best friend. It it just it stops everything. The thought of being without it is unbearable, isn't yeah, it? It's, it's got such a grip on you. Mm-hmm. You've got to be high. Got to be. You, you're not happy in your own skin, are you? It's like no. until you reach that point, it it, it, it it senses your weakness and just keeps attacking, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there is, like saying there is, I, I, I thought, you know, in the big book has all these reads, you know, I thought I was going to be one of those unfortunate ones because, you know, I'd, I'd started going to the support groups and, and and I was still relapsing. I was still picking up a drink and, you know, the first drink gets you drunk is a famous quote. And I was like, what, what, what does that mean? It's not the first, it's like the 15th. I might be a bit wobbly. And it's like, yeah, but if you don't, and eventually... You know, it's like the first tablet, the first line, the first anything. That first action, if you don't do it, I won't end up in a police cell. And that and that took it took a while to learn that and understand it. You made the decision to quit then. Were the wolves howling? And how did you resist that call? Um I think I'd just I'd I'd done enough. Um, I haven't had I mean I'm human and I think of having a drink now and again or taking something Um, but what I do is I have to remember you know because like the sun's starting to come out you know people drinking outside in the bars and you've got the ice cold lager or the, the wine glass and it looks so appealing and People are sitting around and talking and laughing and having a great time. You know, I have to remember that where my last drink took me. You know, I I stopped doing that sort of drinking a few years before. You know, I hadn't done that for a long time. You know, my drinking took me to a police cell or a hospital bed or death. That is what it is. And my life actually is, sounds like a cliche, my life is, is so much better with um, in recovery, knowing what I know about myself, um, what to do, and how to, li- you know, it, 
you know, the 12 steps for me, it's like a guide to how to live. And before, I, I never knew how to live before. Like saying, you know, I always felt like a fraud and I'd get found out. And, you know, I, and I, st I can still have imposter syndrome, you know, like, like, what am I doing here talking to you? It's like, what the fuck, what the fuck do I know? <laughs> you know, I haven't done anything. Um, and again, that's like, almost like, you know, that, that addict head. Yeah, yeah, shut, shut up, get your ego in place. You don't know what you're talking about. You're rubbish. You know, that voice that I had as a kid and growing up and that I was going to get found out. You know, I can still get that. But I've got all this, these other tools that I pull on and, you know, the support and friends I have as well. Because life's shit. You know, re bad things happen. People die. Um, people get cancer. Bad things happen. But that doesn't mean that, you know everybody then ends up an alcoholic and drug addict. They don't. But it's like, it's life. And life's not fair. And how it's how I get through. All right. So you said to, the problem's got to be acknowledged. I really like what you said. You know, if, if someone's like trying to tempt you back into that lifestyle, then you, you say to yourself, where did this bring me to? Mm-hmm. Where did it get me previously? Because, you know, if someone offered me something, I'm immediately thinking, right, this led to SWAT team, six years of my life gone, your parents' hearts broken, sister's heart broken. There's just no way, you know. So if you're out there and you're going through things, then say to yourself, what has this got me? I like that. What, what previously, what place did this bring me to? And then that just puts all of those consequences in your head because you've got this other voice saying, you know, you could do this and relax and feel great and mm -hmm. socialise and blah, blah, blah. But this becomes bigger than that, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you also said um, getting wired up and going on drug busts and going in nightclubs and SWAT team raids and all that was nothing compared to the, the, the inner battle. And it is an inner battle. So it doesn't matter what's going on around you, however your brain is wired, whatever your, your chemicals are doing, um, you've got to go deep inside yourself, haven't you, to address the root causes to win that inner battle. So how do how do people do that? Because that, I think that's perhaps the hardest part. Because um, there's, there's yeah. the acknowledging it. There's the saying, I'm not going to do this again because of the consequences but there's there's the end of battle in the middle, isn't there? I think it's it's isn't it? Oh, you could put that in a pill and sell it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it makes money. Um, it, it it's that you you have to be you have to have a level of honesty with yourself. Um, like one of the things I always remember is feelings aren't facts. So, um. You know, if you say something to me and I feel rejected, that isn't actually the fact of the matter. You've just said something. I've I've um, read it this way, and I'm rejected. As a matter of fact, it isn't that at all. It's that you know, that's how my head interpretates stuff. So, um, you know, like I'd go up to somebody and I'd say hi, and they just sort of like go, "Oh, hi." It's like, "Oh, they don't like me." They've just rejected me. And that's what, you know, and that's how I feel. 
in matter of fact, that person was just really busy and they came back to speak to me later. So I always used to um, react to my feelings, like, again, re- react to my feelings straight away. So I'd feel something and I'd react. And that feeling something led me to a drink or a drug. You know, that, that. so now it, it, this is what I've learned through through recovery is that, you know, feelings aren't facts and they're temporary. Every, everything is temporary. And these feelings are often based in childhood stuff. So I have to recognise that feeling, what it is, what is it bringing up in me and why, and then remembering I am now, I'm not that child. That's not actually happening. I'm, I'm an adult and if, if, if something's not clear, it's then ask the person, oh, did you mean this? And they go, no, no, I was just saying this because of this. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's really good because you've just you've pinpointed your like root cause trigger mechanism, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Um, Self esteem, and then approval, and then your interpretation of the 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 input from other people, how you you misinterpreted that. So one of the things that that therapist um, taught me was you know, cognitive behavioural therapy based on stoic philosophy, whereby Epictetus, you know, it doesn't matter what happens around us, it's our interpretation of it that matters. Mm-hmm. And, and ultimately, we must take responsibility for our um, thoughts and emotions because cause we, you know, someone could get in your face and say, you, 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 you're a piece of shit, I'm going to do this to you, blah, blah, blah. You could say to yourself, that person's just mentally ill having a bad day. And wish him what, wish him well. Or you could say, yeah, I am a piece of shit, and um, go away feeling horrible. But that's your decision, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So you have control of that ultimately. But until you understand that, especially as a young person, the psychodynamics are like beyond your comprehension, aren't they? So it's happening, and you're reacting, but you don't understand all of the, mm-hmm. the, the, the you know. Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately taking response responsibility for what I can take responsibility for is is my own thoughts and feelings. But again, being able to sort out the figment of my imagination Mm. and actually, like, you know, saying the facts about, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know what I thought this is. It's it's like, you know, but I think as well, like younger generations, I feel a bit more hopeful for them because more and more people are, are talking about this sort of being able to talk, you know, mental health. You need to talk about what's going on for you. You need to talk about how how you feel because then somebody's got an opportunity to, to then say to you, okay, this is how you feel, but have you actually looked at it from this angle? And then people can you start to understand or like saying start to understand your thought, your thought process based on stuff that happened to you as a child, which which worked for you as a kid, but don't work for you in adult life. So, you know, and again, like, and for me, with all the stuff that I did, you know, I, uh, you know, that self-worth stuff, you know, the shame and guilt and remorse that can keep people drinking and using because we're full of shame, guilt and remorse of, you know, I acknowledge that's where my illness took me and 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 I did do what I did, but I don't do that today. 
and I don't intend to do that tomorrow. So, but I, I, you know, I, I can still get, you know, especially when I talk about my, my children and what I put them through, you know, that huge sense of shame um, of not being able to stop sooner or, 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 or even be, become what I did in the first place. So for the people watching this then, I think, you know, this is just so powerful what you're saying. Your honesty, you've been on the brink of death multiple times. Mm. Um, it, it, it just, people are going to be like, wow, Suzanne's really been through this and she's come out the other side. And I, I salute you. I, know, I understand how hard it is. Uh, what What is your life like now? <laughs> <laughs> My life is so boring. Now. <laughs> uh, boring it, is the new black. <laughs> you, you, do you know what it is? It, 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 it's like um, I before when when I was trying to get recovery and I was in a, in crazy stuff like that and and you know we'd be in a room and people would talk about uh, spring and and the flowers coming up and hearing the birds. I'd be like, what the fuck is going on here? If I turn into something like that, then shoot me now you know it just like and also but also like on the most like if i can't drink or use drugs what the fuck am i supposed to do like all the things i did with my friends socializing it's all around that it's it's everywhere it's in everything you know even going to the pictures now there's a bar it's it's like what the hell am i gonna do um, and then what I did realise is actually I had no life. The life I was going to die, what I was doing, was that actually um, I, I now notice the birds singing and the flowers <laughs> coming up. It's just like, I'm like, oh, God, I'm such a cliche. But um, <laughs> I'm the same. I wake up and smile at the squirrels. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's just, yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's been such a, a journey, but like... M- what I valued before and after are completely different. You know, it's like um, I've got it's the same way to say the life beyond my wildest dreams, which is is true. But but that isn't like for me. What's not, it's not like oh having a house in France and the big four by four and the yacht and um, all the material stuff, the new you know the latest iPhone and whatever bloody being able to control my heating by what my phone or whatever it is it it's like um you know I, I wake up in the morning I'm in a clean bed I have a roof over my head my bills are paid I have food in the cupboard I have everything I need wants are just different and, and it's just stuff um and I go through the day um trying to be I, I try each day to turn up and do the best I can. And that best can sometimes not be doing much. And sometimes I do lots of stuff, you know, to do with, um, you know, leap charity work and drug reform and speaking to people, you know, um, which is great. And that might be slightly egoish, as in, as in, but actually... It's a passion of mine. Let me just say to the viewers, Suzanne does all this leap, drug reform work for free. 
So please support what she's doing. All the links are in the description box below the video. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> no, that, keep, thank keep, you. Keep, keep going. But, but you know, um, you see, cause I, I just get like full of like, Suzanne, shut up, you're talking shit. You, because, because I do this, but I don't get paid for it. So I'm not contributing to my household. The pressure's on my husband. I'm not worthy. I'm worthless. I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, just like that, within five seconds, I can go back into that thinking really easily. But that's not the case. You know, feelings aren't facts, Suzanne. So, and it sounds really, and again, people out there probably won't get it, but as a person that's come from, um, um, you know, maybe similar to, you know, your experiences in, in the Phoenix jail, wasn't it, that you're in? Yeah. You know, I was in a cell of my own making, you know, so it was obviously really harder for me. John, and that's a joke. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't. But, you know, I, I made, you know, four walls of my house, my own prison, you know. I could have walked out any time, but I didn't, Sean. Who's the idiot? Um, that... Um, if, you know, and sometimes, you know, wake up, I feel just in a mood and fucking just life shit, isn't it? And, you know, you drop your toast on the floor and you get a bill through the door or whatever. Um, that when I get to bed at night and I put my head on the pillow, if I haven't drank or used a drug, that's a good day. That's a great day. And I can forget that when I go down the materialistic ego stuff avenue. Um, you know, I'm there for my husband. I've been there for my, you know, f for my kids. Um, I help, try and help other people. Uh, you know, I do my, the, the charity work as well. Um, and, you know, I try to reach out my hand to the still suffering alcoholic you know, inside and, and outside, as, as, as a saying, as much as I can, as long as it doesn't affect my recovery. Um, because that's another thing I, you know, my, I have to be as selfish with my drinking as I, as selfish with my recovery. You know, I have to put my recovery before everything. You know, and that even becomes before my kids, because if I don't do that, I'll lose all that. So, you know, if, and again, you know, and that goes actually for parents, you know, being parents, if you you have to look after yourself and, and maybe make some changes because if you don't, you won't be there for, you, for your kids or your family members. You know, like if you're working eight hours a week, you're not there for your kids anyway, even though you're earning the money for all the stuff. Are you really present? And it's never enough, is it? Well, that's, that's programmed into us, isn't it? Um, especially in the West. So, just just go over some of the important things you touched on there. Then, um, when I got out of prison, I thought, right, you got to be on some kind of. I'm not going to go back to drugs, but alcohol socially acceptable. All my mates drink every weekend. They were just like we were going to the pubs. I was getting drunk with them. And I, prior to that, I wasn't really into alcohol. I just went straight to like chemicals, rave scene chemicals. So then I, I'm doing that, getting the hangovers, a bit of a workaholic, can't work, you know, my head's all, all fuzzy. Moved down south, and my body combat instructor, I start hanging out with him, 
And he's like the life and soul of the party, and he's the last person to go home at all the, all these house parties and stuff. And he never drank. I was like, holy shit, you could go out and have a good time without being on something. So that was my light bulb moment where I decided to to not do that. And um, the therapist also said, if you you know you're giving up all this lifestyle, there's some, there's a hole in you. You got to put things in in its place. So fitness like became my thing then, like anything from yoga to meditation, all these different classes, and um, you know the, the physical the movements, the physical the exercise re- releases those brain chemicals and and changes the mental, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So how how do you keep mentally sound, and do you do any kind of like physical stuff? Yeah, so I do. Um so I've always been sporty. Yeah. Um, and also, but I also have to be aware because I did have an addiction to exercise. Mm. So, you know, for me, I I try and exercise every other day, something. It's yeah. usually, well, under lockdown, it's been running. But now it's, yeah, I can mix that up with the gym. Mm-hmm. Um, and because when I'm running, I can really zone out. Or I listen to sort of like... Um, people like Brené Brown, and I'm actually listening to Edith Edgar at the moment, who's a 93-year-old who was in Auschwitz. Wow. Who got through, anyway. Um, and it's all this, you know, self-worth stuff. And yeah, it's, it's my thing, anyway. Um, so I do that. I sh- I'd say I'm, I'm not... Uh, I try and avoid say, saying should. I would like to get back into my yoga because... I've got an issue with my back, and but um, I used to go regularly before lockdown to a cl- to some classes, which obviously stopped, and I just couldn't do it at home. I just I just didn't. Um, and but I know that is very good for me, and hopefully I can start doing that again. But definitely for me, exercise is huge because because I can do it and I can just zone out and you know, the endomorphins and all the rest of it to do that. Um, and the other stuff is, is you know, we think that we, we have to ha- take something to be this person that we think people will like about us and exactly. we'll, be more in, you know, we'll be more interesting. Yeah. Actually, people become a lot... I find now, noticing people <laughs> drinking, they become really boring. You know, it's like, you've told me that already. No, no, you have told me that already. Um, uh, <laughs> a bit loud yeah. and obnoxious as well. Yeah, yeah. And the violence as well. Oh, well, well, I mean, and that's the thing about it is, you know, we have this thing, alcohol, that's socially acceptable. It's legal. It's available every, more or less everywhere you go. But actually causes, isn't you know, more deaths, more harms than illicit drugs that we you know that we talk about it's the drug that kills the most young people in this yeah. country isn't it and I, I got a stat years ago and if it's the same but three young people a week were dying from binge drinking in this country yeah yeah blows away all the other deaths of mm-hmm. all the other drugs yeah yeah but we don't talk about that because that's not very convenient the government's getting paid off <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry to detract there so you're saying then all right you, you it, it, we we do predominantly personal life stories on this channel. Mm-hmm. But I think it's great that all these life lessons that are transferable to people watching, some of whom may be going through things, um, some of whose lives could be changed by what you've said. So you've got acknowledging it. You've got the battle with the uh, the inner battle, you, you know, root causes and demons. Once you got through that, then you remind yourself, if I go back to this, 
here's where it took me last time. And finally, you've got, you know, channeling your energy into other things that are going to make you happy. Mm -hmm. Because you can be happy without being partying and doing a lot of stuff. And exercise is really important, I think. So that's that's, that's a great way to, um, to round up the life lessons component of what we <laughs> talked about, yeah, yeah. And um, is there anything you would like to say then in conclusion to the people watching this? Oh. <laughs> um, I think, you know, wherever you're at, it's really important to, to take courage and speak your own truth. And that's sometimes something that is ugly and people might not want to hear or um, listen to. I think, I think from from a side of you know, if if you are struggling with substances, that you know, you're not alone. There are people out there that can help and support you. Um, and and it's an illness, you know. It's not something you've brought on yourself. It's not because you're a bad person or you've done something wrong. It's it's an illness and it's a progressive illness and it gets worse. But there is help and support out there. So All right. The other the other audience I want you to address is the, are the police people watching this because oh, okay. they are out there. They come up to me sometimes and they say, look, I watch your podcasts. I agree with you about the war on drugs. But there's nothing I can we can do about it. I can't even speak out about this. You know, I'm just being. I get these orders from above, and we, we, we've got to do what we're told. But my thing is, I'm thinking if enough of these good cops watching shows like this stand up to their bosses and say, "Look, I joined to arrest the paedophiles, the predators, you know, the big time drug traffickers, but not to mass incarcerate vulnerable people, people with addiction issues." Some of these leap cops say they were assigned to infiltrate student groups and get them smoking weed so they could get all these arrest quotas, lowest hanging fruit. Mm. Private prisons, tens of billions of years, all this, you know, private prisons putting money up to tighten drug laws so more kids can go to prison where they end up on heroin and in America joining neo-Nazi gangs. What future is that for the young people? Criminal records, like you've pointed out, they can't get jobs. What do you say to the cops... Because it's people in the system, I believe, can get changes made internally. The politicians, they what they they've come to my talks and they've had an emotional reaction and promised the world, and I never hear from them again. Mm-hmm. What do you say to these people who can make changes in the system? It is. I mean, it's. I understand the frustrations, um, you know, of the laws. The laws are there, and the police are there to uphold them. But you know, unless people that are in in the system that are upholding these laws and and they see clearly that they're not working um, and there's more injustices from that. You know, they're locking up the wrong people, they're criminalising the wrong people. It's not... It, this law is making no difference to, you know, like saying the Misuse of Drugs Act, 1971, to stopping the supply and demand of drugs. You know, it's clearly shown, and, and we know, as police officers out there, you know it's not working... And unless we start speaking out about this, you know, who else are best placed to say, look, these laws are not working. They're not fit for purpose. You know, look, they're not working. Who else is? And I know that can be difficult when you've got people above you um, 
that you may feel that you can't, you know, but, you know, reach out to us, reach out to us at Leap. You know, we're happy to come and speak to people, um, show them the evidence that it's not working, show other ways where people have legalised and regulated drugs, solutions and treatments that other countries have done um, that, that save lives and stop people dying and stop criminalising people pointlessly because of this archaic drug policy that we have in place. So take the courage to stand up for what's right. Look at all the cops who die on raids, drug raids that don't achieve anything. Yeah. They don't stop the drugs. And um, was it Neil Woods who said, yeah, I arrest a burglar, burglary stop. I arrest a murderer, murder stop. Shoplifter, shoplifting stops. Arrest a drug dealer and just mayhem ensues because they're all fighting over the turf. And then the drugs... Mm-hmm. Drug stop the flow of the drug stops yeah. for five seconds, yeah. but the, the the dealers are right back out on the street. And didn't you say as well in one of your talks? I think it was Chris Thrall. Shout out to Chris Thrall. Um, we've had him on a couple of times, and he's got he's got a brilliant channel. It's it's, it's really grown. Um, Ex military. I think you said sixty six sixty seven percent of people in prison. It's like low level drug stuff. Yeah, well, it's the facts for you. It's actually the Bromley report that's out, and it's. Um, you know, 67% of prisoners in prison are there for acquisition crime. So not so not necessarily they're arrested for drugs, but 67% of them are there for acquisition crime, which they've committed in order to get the drugs that they need to because they're ill. And they're not potheads either. They're mostly people who are addicted to heroin, aren't yeah. they? Mm-hmm. It causes a massive amount of acquisitive crime. And hence Portugal has seen this collapse and that program um, that, that the Portuguese uh, implemented actually started in my hometown, Witness. Oh, right. Yeah. But I, I think Johan Harry wrote about it. Um, shoplifting collapsed so much, they were going to roll it out across the country. <laughs> and then the Americans found out about it. And one call to Downing Street closed down. Status quo makes the most money. Why? They want to improve the mm-hmm. world. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's an absolute... Um, travesty that the status quo is creating everything from knife crime in London, the majority of it, young people competing over the black market in drugs created by drug laws, to hundreds of thousands of people dead in Mexico. Yeah. And there are people profiting from this who don't want it to end. In fact, if it gets worse for these people, they will make even more money. Tens of billions a year, private prison contracts, and they're kicking down Oh, mere, mere millions a year to the politicians of all parties to keep it in place. And that is absolutely sick. Mm-hmm. All right. So Susanna's come in here and bird her soul. Give us some very important life lessons, especially for people who are going through things. Been on the brink of death multiple times. And I think it's just so powerful, you know, for her to come through that and now to be giving her own time, not to be getting paid anything, to do all of this campaigning for LEAP, to be there. What's your title with LEAP again? Um, so LEAP, Law Enforcement Action Partnership, I'm co-executive director. And these people, including Neil Woods, including Simon McLean, <laughs> that was a bloody funny podcast we did with him, he's hilarious. Um, the Scottish guy, if, if you didn't see that one, I'll, I'll put it on the ex-cop um, playlist. Um, you know giving their own time to try and make the world a better place. And it is tearing the fabric of society apart. Drug laws, how bad has it got to get? Fentanyl, 
the massacres in Mexico, knife crime in London. What's it going to take to get it reversed? It's, it's, it's common sense. I know the younger generation see the sense in it, but there's this old generation profiting from the status quo, the tens of billions a year, private prison contracts, prison guards unions putting money up to tighten drug laws and keep people in prisons for longer. And it's mostly like the lowest hanging fruit that going in, the young people going in, and then they come out with heroin addictions and neo-Nazi tattoos if they're in, you know, if it's if it's the American system, that's what I saw firsthand. So, support Leap, support Suzanne. All the links are going to be in the description box. What can people do for Leap? You know, they can click over to the website, and what what kind of action can they take? Can they donate to Leap? And yeah, all the information should be on the Leap website, which is ukleap.org. Obviously, you can put the www dot in front of that. Um, and reach out to us. Um, can people know. volunteer? Can yes, people donate money? Yeah. What kind of roles would you be looking for at Leap for people to uh, well, volunteer? Well, we're actually having an AGM on the 7th of June, which you need to be a member for because we've just become a charity, but you can, you can sign up for that. But, you know, reach out, out to us and let's have a conversation. I'm an associate member, I think, of the US Leap. Mm-hmm. What? How much does it cost to be in a, like an associate member or a full member of the UK League? It doesn't cost anything. It's sort of donation based. I see. Okay. Now, if people want to contact you, like individually, like um, are you on like Twitter or any of those Facebook, any of those platforms? I'm actually rubbish on social <laughs> media. I'm not. Um, but also, again, if you reach out to the UK Leap. Um, website and information yeah my um email work email i can give you that should i give people that or if you want to put it out there you might get some weirdos um because a lot of people watch these videos <laughs> <laughs> there's always some weirdos <laughs> um, it's up to you uh well i say just go through the website and then, these, then i've got jason there to buffer me <laughs> okay so Please let us know in the comments what you thought about today's video. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. The subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen. And we try to finish our podcast with a hug. We have had a few guests have danced. <laughs> but we'll finish. I know you're an old school raver, so let's finish it with a hug. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll get you to do the old. <laughs> 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 get the right tunes on. <laughs>